0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark
1: Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 160. And today on the show, we are joined by Brian Call of the Gritty Bowman Podcast. And we discuss Brian's lessons learned from applying whitetail tactics to blacktail hunting, his first whitetail bow hunt, and most interesting, the importance of mental toughness when hunting. And in particular, our conversation around this topic, mental toughness, which we get to late in the episode, I think is absolutely killer. Do not miss it. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And today we've got we've got a fun episode. We've got a kind of a, a widely diverse episode um, because in a little while here we're going to be joined by Brian Call of the Gritty Bowman. And this conversation happened actually a couple weeks back while I was in Montana for that Sitka Gear Converge event that we talked about. Um, and me and Brian got to talk about a whole slew of different things. Um, kind of interestingly, Brian listened to the Wired Hunt podcast a lot and was able to take the information he heard us talking about when it comes to whitetails and apply that to his blacktail hunting in Oregon. So we talk about that. Um, we talk about his first whitetail hunt in Alabama. And then we get into some really interesting stuff related to mental toughness and the mental side of hunting. And that's probably my favorite part of this whole conversation that we're going to listen to here in a second. So some good stuff. But um, but Dan wasn't there with us. Obviously, I was there just for this event. But uh, Dan is with us now to catch up on some stuff. And there's a lot f- lots for us to catch up on, right, Dan? That's a fact, Jack. You've been a busy man.
2: Well, at least uh, a day and a half I was.
1: That's good. That's good. Yeah. Before we yeah. get to that busy stuff, yeah. I want to I want to share a little bit of an update with our audience about something okay. coming up and a and a change to something that's coming up. I've talked a couple times in the podcast about the fact that I'm going to be speaking at the Quality Deer Management National Convention coming up, right? We've talked about this right. a little bit. Well, you know, the plan was for for us to do a live podcast recording down there. And I've been running through a couple different ideas of of how we might be able to do that. But finally, I was like, you know what? To do this right, I just have to somehow get my nine-fingered (laughs) co-host down to New Orleans somehow. So I had to bribe your wife. I paid thousands and thousands and thousands (laughs) of dollars for your wife to allow you to leave the house. (laughs) Right. Right. And you're going to be joining me on the stage for the live recording of our podcast with a special guest i'm not going to talk about who that guest is going to be but there will be a third person with us and he's someone i've wanted to have on the podcast for years um someone who i think is a really interesting um hunter and we are have some really great stuff to talk about but you will be there rocking the stage with me i'm pumped about that man how
2: many people are going to like how many people are we going to be in front of
1: I'm guessing there might be five people that are interested in hearing us. Okay. At, okay. At max, there might be five people.
2: <laughs> okay. I don't know. I heard like 200, but if it's only five, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just, at, that, at that point, it's just like talking to the mounts in in my uh, office. Yeah, here.
1: yeah. I I don't think we're gonna be a big draw, but three right. three to five people might be interested. <laughs> right. I, I have no idea. I, I mean, I
2: talked with Ben Harshine. Uh, of Huntera maps the other day. Uh And he told me that this isn't like the ATA show. This is the age group here. Uh, like the 55 and older crowd and, uh, guys like uh, us are, and I'm even 10 years older than you, but we are, we're, we're the minority.
1: Well, I say that's a little bit dramatic. It's definitely not just 55 and over. I, I mean, I've been to the national convention before it's, it's a diverse crew. Uh um, okay. but, but there's certainly, I think it's fair to say maybe it skews a little bit towards a more mature, uh, group, but, <laughs> uh, but I think there'll be people that are interested. I'm excited. And, 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 you know, what we're gonna be talking about, and I've touched on this a little bit, but really it's all going to be about expanding your horizons as a deer hunter. It's something we talk about a lot here. Um, I'm particularly passionate about just going to new places, trying new things, and I think. In particular, I mean, I think a lot of the guys that are practicing quality deer management, like really practicing it, um, some of these guys, they own land or they've got a lease and they're managing it and they're putting in habitat improvements and they're doing great stuff, like awesome stuff. They're great deer hunters. I really enjoy that type of deer hunting too. But I think you sometimes get locked into doing the same thing and you only do that one thing. And I think you miss right. out a little bit when you don't try – New ways of hunting, new experiences in hunting. So my my hope with this is that you know, and this is something we talk about in the podcast a lot. So this isn't anything new for our audience, but um, I hope that we can kind of inspire a few folks, maybe just one person, that hey, you know what, I do want to try something different once, and you know what, I think it's possible given what these guys had to say. That's that's my hope. So we're gonna talk about how to pull off these trips, how to have that kind of experience, how to get outside of your comfort zone. Um, and I don't know, I, I just love. Going to new places, trying new things, and um, I think we'll be able to pepper our guests with some questions, and I'm going to share a lot of my experiences, and you've done some of this, and you can share some thoughts on that, um, and if, if nothing else, just you're going to look very pretty up there on the stage, Dan, so <laughs> <laughs> I think that's key. I tell you what, you, you know –
2: the reason I did a podcast and not like a a web show is because of (laughs) probably of my face. I have a face for radio.
1: Yes. That's, that's what they say. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's going to be fun though. I'm looking forward to it. And um, I just, I was like, you know what, if there's anyone that's going to be there that wants to be part of a live wired on podcast, they're going to want the real deal. They're going to want that real experience. And that uh, that's you and me, buddy. That's you and me doing what we're doing. I appreciate you inviting me. Um, yeah, I'm excited about it, and I also I haven't even told you about this, but I kind of uh, am volunteering you to do something. Um, and you can tell me you can tell me if you're not up for this. But, well, um, I mean, is there a Uh it, It's quite possible. Um, oh, depends boy. on how the night goes. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but I was thinking it'd be really cool. You know, I'm sure there's I'm sure there's gonna be some people down there for this big event that um, have followed the Wired Home podcast and might be interested in, in, you know, just hanging out with other Wired to Hunt podcast listeners. And I was thinking, you know, the events that day, Friday, July 21st, when we'll be doing our live podcast, um, the events that day end at, like, 7 o'clock, so there's no, like, official events the rest of the evening. I was like, you know, it would be really cool to do, like, a Wired to Hunt meetup. Anyone down there who'd like to get together with some, you know, some fellow whitetail nuts and you and me and our guest... We're going to pick a pick a location, like 8 o'clock Friday night, and if you're interested, stop on by whatever bar or restaurant we're at and uh, have a drink with us, say hi, talk about the podcast, uh, anything on your mind, and we'll just have a hangout. A bunch of us get together and have a good time. A meet and greet. A meet and greet. What do you think? Okay. I like the idea,
2: but what time does my flight leave <laughs> Saturday morning?
1: It is early the next to- morning. <laughs>
2: Oh boy. So
1: I'm going to, I'm going to have to behave myself. You will. This will be Dan Johnson light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no hard alcohol. Exactly. <laughs> that might be a good idea anyways though. So right, this is right. like, this is like a forced filter on, on what you do. <laughs> so that will be fun, right?
2: Right, absolutely. It's so, going to be cool. I'd, I'd like to meet some of the other guys. You know, some of the people who listen to this, and uh, maybe put a, a name with a face.
1: Exactly. So, we're doing our live podcast recording at the national convention, which is down in New Orleans, and we are doing this at nine forty-five a.m. on Friday, July twenty-first. So, if this podcast is coming out, you know this is, this podcast is basically coming out just a week before we'll be speaking down there. So, if you're already going down there, if you live close by, you can still sign up for the convention. you can get a day pass if you want or show up for multiple days. It is really a tremendous event. There is an amazing set of speakers and resources and seminars and things going on there. It really is a great event. I've been several times. It's always great, and um, we'd love to see you there this time with us there. So, friday july 21st in the morning for the speaking and then tentatively 8 p.m meetup that night i do not have a location picked out yet but i'm going to be sharing that on the wired hunt twitter account instagram and facebook as we get closer so just make sure you're following wired hunt on social media and check that on friday and we'll make sure to give that location so anyone out there who wants to hang out we'd love to see on friday so that's the game plan dan and uh Let's talk deer, though, right? Let's talk deer. So tell me. I got, w- I got
2: one question for you before we get started. Okay. Have you checked your cameras on your Michigan farm yet?
1: I have not checked cameras. Okay. So, so you nothing. don't know
2: if Holyfield is walking around anywhere?
1: I know nothing. Um, okay. All I know, I did get a little interesting tidbit, Um. Uh. A person I know that lives near um this property, sort of a friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine. Her husband told her that he's been seeing a really big buck in this bean field, and he claims like two feet tall the rack, yeah, and she called me and said hey if you you might want to come and and check out this field because there's this really big buck that's been coming out so I just heard about that a couple nights ago. I just got home from Missouri, so I haven't I haven't had a chance to go check it out yet, but uh I'm going to be heading out tonight probably to go scope this area out and see if this happens to be my man. So, wow. I'm excited. That that'd be crazy. But, uh, but yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited uh that that he could be around or any any nice buck like that could be around. So, it's that time of year. I'm just I'm just pumped to see some big velvet bucks. Awesome. Awesome.
2: I, uh, I checked my trail cams, man. Uh, yeah. and I had a, I finally got a, a day and a half to where I could go do some, uh, some actual work and, uh, kind of, uh, a long story short, I'm looking at a little map right here. One, two, three, four, five stands prepped. And ready to hunt in my traditional rut spots nice. um, for the upcoming season. And I checked three trail cameras uh, while I was out there. One I, I didn't get to because it's in the way, it's way far back of the farm. Uh, I'll let it soak just a little bit longer. Um, added another camera to a, a mineral location that I didn't have one on before. and uh, And then walked out of the timber with poison ivy and uh and a lot of sweat so i got but the good thing is i got the work done and uh that's what that's what's most important
1: that is awesome i love when we get to be able to talk about this stuff like i love the trail camera poles. i love the the summer projects moving stands and everything um like this is this is the chess match a lot of it's happening right now right that it's just a matter of then executing on it or, or just, you know, playing it out, letting, letting the pieces fall where they may in November right now we're setting the stage. Um, so this is, this is it. Tell me yep. what, uh, are these new stands you hung or were these just like trimming out and prepping current stands?
2: Yeah. So I have of those, of those five, two of them st- had stands in the, uh, tree from the previous year. So the only thing I had to do was put the sticks up, loosen up the strap, make sure it was safe, do an inspection on it, cut uh, like a handful of branches out of the shooting lanes. So basically it was just maintenance. And the other three were full blown trim outs. And I would say out of the eight and a half, nine hours, I was outside doing work on Saturday. um, I'd say about six or seven hours were put into those three stand lo- locations. Yeah. That's, that's uh, the real work right
1: there. Yeah. So can you tell me about these locations or, or one of these locations? Like what's uh why just set up there? What's, what's going to make these spots so good and when are you going to hunt them?
2: Right. Uh, okay. So as you know, kid coming late September. So my October, you know, early season probably just isn't going to happen uh, unless I'm hunting around home somewhere. But, these stand locations are historically good pinch points, right? Um, I've had tree stands in there before, but not in these trees. So, I mean, you still have to go and do a complete trim out. Yep. Um, one is over a very popular fence crossing that is in between the corner of a pasture and, uh, a crick, uh, a, with a really steep bank. So the deer aren't going up and down it, they're, they're moving through that area. Uh, the other one is another pinch point kind of where, uh, one random year I set a trail camera, uh, down in this little, uh, crossing and I got every mature buck on the property on this one, one little area. Wow. So I, I, I think I told you this a little bit before, but there is a small Ridge that is in between two bigger ridges. Um, it's short, shorter than the the. It's in the middle. So imagine the ridge is looking like a W, right? With the middle one being shorter. Okay. Yep. So I I had to set up on the far left part of the W, and but still get a shot into this pinch point because my deer lab was showing that like eighty percent of the movement going through that pinch point was happening on a northwest wind. Hmm. Okay. So if I was very like really close to the, like actually in the pinch point on a Northwest wind, my, my, my wind would be blowing over the middle Ridge and, and what I, where I'd sat in in the past blowing up into a bedding area. Right. So I knew that I had a, I have, I have to hunt this on a Northwest wind. I have to have a stand in there for North Northwest wind. So I had to move to, the west just a little bit more um, so that when on a north northwest wind, my scent is blowing up the left side of the small ridge and not going over the ridge into the bedding area and blowing out into this pasture. I so, yeah. So, um, just like basically a really strategic move on stand location, uh, 50 yards away from uh, where I was the previous year. And then It's crazy. This is what I've noticed: that my tree stand locations in the past couple years are less about a area and more about a specific trail, right? And getting and micromanaging those stand locations so much that you can get your access route into these stand locations Uh to the point where you're not getting busted you have the advantage from the time you walk in to the time you get to the stand and then through historic either trail camera uh pictures or uh intel from the stand you know what trail these deer are using so the two pinch point stands i'm literally hunting one maybe two shooting lanes on the same exact trail so i mean i set these stands these stands up at 15 yards 20 yards shots and just really hoping that on these on the correct wins, I'm getting I'm getting play, uh, you know, from from those trails.
1: That's exciting. I love how yeah. well, stuff we talk about so much, you know, trying to fine tune our sets. You know, we always talk yeah. about we need to take that extra effort to to go and make those small adjustments. And uh, I like the fact that it sounds like you've done that here.
2: Yeah. So and I got another So the third full blown uh, trim out was down in near a bedding area, right? So previously I hunted on a southwest south wind down in this bedding area because if I have anything north, it tends to ride this crick ridge, uh, this crick line in a field edge and deer move up and down it all the time. So because I'm going to be using uh, different access routes to this area like walking through cricks this year. I needed a place to hunt on a north wind as well. So I have another stand that I, I walked down there and I full blown trim out was probably 15 yards to 20 yards away from the stand. That was, so I have two stands within 20 yards of each other.
1: Is the old stand still there? Yep. Yep. I left it there and now we you ever hunt that with a different wind direction or something.
2: Yeah, I, I have that stand there for a south wind. Okay. And then the one the one I just trimmed out is for a northwest north wind.
1: Gotcha. Cool. So,
2: yep. So it's going to be one of those things where, um, depending on the wind, I'm going to hunt the same area, but I'm using a different access route and a different uh, stand. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. That's like, I feel like that's so, that used to be one of those things earlier in my like hunting time where I was like, oh, that seems stupid. to have two stands right in the same area around the same food source or the same, whatever. But the more and more I learn and experience like that is, that's one of those little pro tips. Like, yes, yep. having just the right angle with a certain wind direction is worth having two different setups in a certain area. Um, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah.
2: So then I also did a, you know, I don't know if this has ever happened to you and I'm sure it has. You walk into an area and I, I have this area it's kind of a bedding area and I'm so anal now about where I'm setting in what tree that I'm setting my stands in that I walked into this area and I said okay northwest wind okay I'm gonna gonna go to this uh, I'm gonna go to this tree and set it up but if it's a little out of the north this wouldn't work okay so I can't do that tree so I ended up walking into this area And then walking right back out of it after about 30 minutes of walking around it, basically, (laughs) basically scouting because it's going to be one of those areas where even the smallest uh, directional wind change is going to result in me having to hunt out of a different tree in that area. So there's no point of pre-hanging a set in there unless I was hanging like six sets. Yeah. And I I don't have that many tree stands. So this, that area is going to be a run and gun set. Specifically, there's yeah. not going because every every de- every change in wind direction is going to result in a different area of this this ri- this point of a ridge slash bedding area that I'm going to have to hunt in.
1: Yeah. Did you trim any like lanes out just in like preparation for having a couple spots to throw a tree stand in on the running gun or no?
2: Nope. The only thing that I did was um, I cut down a small tree that was in between kind of a forge like four tree area that had the possibility to know okay I'm going to cut this tree down and it's going to lead to me if having to shoot trim one less shooting lane when I go in there for my running gun
1: yeah that's cool yeah so you got you got a good set yeah a good plan set in place now how many how many more trips do you plan on going in here to make adjustments or are you done? Are you set with this farm?
2: If I do anything, there's going to be one, potentially two more stands that I'm going to be hanging. Um, and that will be a one-time deal when I go in and, cause I still have some trail cameras I need to hang yet. Uh, but It's going to be one, potentially two, and it's going to be on the exact same ridge, right? And they're going to be probably, again, 20 yards apart from each other, maybe less. One on one side of the ridge on the, on the, let's say this ridge runs uh, west, west to east. And I'm going to have one on the south side and one on the north side for different wind directions. Uh, And I'll be able to, to be honest with you. I'll be able to cut one shooting lane that would lead right from one stand to the next. Nice. So other than that stands other than that potential one, and it's, it's been an area that I've hunted before. So I know my way in and out very well. I know the access route in and out. And the only thing I have to do is uh, just set the stand up, um, do some trimming, but it's pretty tight in there. So if there is any trimming, it's going to be very minimal and, yeah, I mean, it'll probably, to be honest with you, it'll probably be a running gun. So the next time I go to my farm, it's going to be stri- strictly a trail camera check slash uh, add new cameras. And then the next time I go in is going to be the, one of the last weeks in August, the first first weekend in September. And it's going to be that transition. Where I take them off the mineral stations and I put them on pinch points, uh, inside corners, fence crossings, whatnot. It's
1: pretty crazy. Season's coming fast. Oh man! So, so we got to hear about that trail camera poll though before we shut this down, Dan. How how did the trail cameras cards look?
2: I tell you what, I was pretty I was pretty happy with what I found. Um, I'll be honest, better than last year. Uh, as far as a maturity level, I think I was looking at maybe four deer that may make four or older, with one one buck maybe being seven or eight. Wow. Uh, I, I I I I'm gonna have to go back and check some of the old cameras or the old trail cam picks that I have of this buck. But it's a buck I've I've named Dork. Yeah. He shows up this time of year every year for the past four or five years and um, he's always had a huge body this year um, his body to be to be honest with you looks a little smaller I mean he looks healthy but his antlers he's all mass he's real tight he's always been in kind of a, uh, I think he's been a 10 pointer but just really tall brows a lots of mass and uh, just a buck that I would love to run into um, some year and uh, I don't know man other than that you know, I got a, a buck that I may have some history with. I posted some pictures on um, Facebook and Instagram of him. My buddy Ryan seems to think it's a buck that he actually hit in the antler. Old uh,
3: that buck?
2: Yeah, he, he seems to think it might be him. Um, I've been really digging through pictures to look for a, a notch on his ear. But this year, all the pictures of him, are none of them are straight on. So you can't see his ear if it's got a notch out of it at all, but it is a mature buck. I would think that that buck was 2014, 15, 16. So that's like a if that buck was a four or five year old, that'd put him at an eight, roughly an eight year old this year. So um, if it is him, maybe. If not, it's a descendant of him. Um, really, really, cagey, really big ten pointer. Um, don't know what he'll make. He may, he may make Booner. But uh, you know, there's still a lot of season left. But but I tell you what, this mild winter, definitely for, for Iowa, definitely uh, going into this year, I'm seeing healthier bodied bucks, and I'm seeing bigger antler development.
1: That's awesome. Now, how's, been, how's the rain situation been down by your property? Because I was just talking with, uh, with Mark Drury down in, in the south part of the state, and he's been really worried about drought where his properties are. Are you seeing that yep. too?
2: Yep. Uh, until, uh, it went June 2nd was the last time we got rain down on the main farm. I spoke with the landowner, uh, this year, but then I, I texted another guy in the area yesterday and they got two inches of rain. So my farm got two inches of rain. I mean, the crops were looking pretty bad. The, the, the beans were real short. Typically this year, they're at least, uh, you know, halfway up the leg. Or, you know, just a little bit below the knee uh, and the corn leaves were starting to roll in on each other. And that's typical of no water and hot weather. But we got two inches and uh, hopefully some of that absorbed into the ground and got the crops where they needed to. Got the, you know, because when you get this drought, then you start worrying about EHD. Exactly. Yep. So I'm I'm just thankful that that uh, that we did get the rain that we uh, that we got.
1: Well, that's good, dude. Well, uh yeah. hopefully hopefully no disease issues over by you and I'm glad to hear you got some good ones on camera and, and next week when we do a podcast, um I should have I should have some updates for you on some trail camera stuff and we don't have time to talk about it now, but next time we'll talk about I've been doing some public land scouting and oh, yeah. found some interesting stuff there and uh continue to work on my private properties here in Michigan. So uh man the the pieces are coming together. Yep.
2: It's that snowball and it's just going to start, you know, the train, the the, the locomotion, the locomotive is starting to gain its momentum. Right. And, uh, here pretty soon. It's just going to be hold on.
1: It's a wild time of year coming up and I'm pumped. So pumped. I'll see you in new Orleans. I will see you in new Orleans. I can't wait, buddy. This is gonna be a lot of fun. And I hope I'll see a lot of you guys in New Orleans as well. Now, before we move on to our conversation with Brian, we do need to pause briefly for our Sitka story of the day. And producer Spencer Newarth has got that queued up for us
3: next. For this week's Sitka story, we're joined by Dan Ness, a Sitka ambassador and elk guide who tells us about his role in the harvest of a monster public land
4: bull. So elk hunting in Southwest Colorado is guiding uh, my two hunters from Texas that I've been guiding for a few years, uh, glass in a, a big, huge meadow. And right at last, about last light, uh, saw an elk uh, appear at the way far end of the meadow, about 600, 700 yards away, pick up my glasses. And sure enough, it's a, a really nice bowl. So I say, big bull, big bull. We got to go. Close the distance, losing light, get to about, 470 500 yards and roughly and I look at my hunter and I say are you confident in this shot and he says absolutely so get him set up and I say send it that bullet goes and hear that bullet hit the elk and an elk takes off and disappears in the brush and kind of looking at each other and you know we we think the shot was good but um, we weren't 100 percent confident on it so we decided to to back up for the evening and just let the bull be in peace and, and come back in the morning Well, we came back in the morning and sure enough, thunderstorm had rolled in complete downpour. So all the blood was washed away and just took our time and worked through, worked through the pinions where we last saw him and found some tracks and, and, uh, kind of saw a beam of light shining through the trees. And sure enough, there he was. And we ended up finding him. And I look over at my hunter. I'm like, there he is, man. And celebrated like crazy. And for a, public land hunt over the counter that bull ended up scoring 368 and it was one of the most incredible hunts of my life
3: on dan's colorado elk hunt he was wearing sitka's timberline pants and stratus jacket if you'd like to create a sitka story of your own or to learn more about sitka's technical hunting apparel visit sitkagear.com
1: so we are in Bozeman, montana it is the sitka converge event and i'm here with podcast extraordinaire (laughs) Brian Call. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, I'm excited. Absolutely.
5: I've been a big fan of Wired Hunt for a long time. Thank you.
1: I appreciate that. It's so cool seeing someone who reached out to me a long time as a listener of the Wired Hunt podcast saying, hey, you know, you got a decent thing going on, um, and then go and show me up and do something so much better. (laughs) It's awesome. So congrats, man.
5: Yeah, for those who don't know, I, um, I... I heard you on a podcast um, uh, about um, business, mm. starting your own business. Okay. Um, is that was, Phil? I, I think so. Phil's podcast? Phil yeah. Haven's? Yes, yes, yes.
1: Bowhunting Freedom podcast. Is that, that ring a bell? Mm,
5: it was like it, how to start. Uh, he that's interviewed, what it was. Is it, was that what it's called?
1: Yeah, I think that's what he calls it. And it, it's all about getting into the bowhunting industry. So or this is like industry. three years ago
5: yeah. or more and so yeah yeah i heard you on the podcast and you were talking about um starting wired to hunt um you know you're you're uh it was what i loved about it was it was 100 percent all you there was no um you weren't partnered up with some company they weren't paying you to do a show it was you ran and you made all the decisions all on your own And you built it all the way up from scratch and it was very much uh digital based yeah and so i heard you on the show talking about it and stuff and then you said yeah anybody who wants to just reach out and you know ask me questions so i sent you an email and i had started down this path of of, i had bought a computer figured out how to do a bunch of uh editing on the computer shoot some video i was kind of self-teaching myself for like six or seven months and i had got a film ready and I was going to put it in full draw film tour. And I I just kind of was playing around with stuff on my own, but I was thinking about starting a podcast for the Western side of hunting. And, and, and so I reached out and you got back to me, but it was like four months
1: after I (laughs) sent the email. If if it makes you feel any better, that's kind of the norm (laughs) for everybody. I'm Uh, I'm so horrible with email.
5: And I'm worse than you because there are people who have emailed me, um, I, there's just too many yeah, I to try. get back to. Yeah. Uh, it was very cool when I did get a message, you know, um, back from you and we went back and forth a few times. And, yeah. But uh, I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait for you. I had to go on without you. And, and, I'm glad and, you did.
1: <laughs> so, so for those who aren't familiar, tell them, tell us what you ended up doing. Okay. Talk about Gritty.
5: Yeah. Yeah. So I started the Gritty Bowman podcast, Gritty Bowman brand. Um, um, I, I graduated from BYU with a degree in accounting and information systems, and I went into business. and I was I was kind of doing IT consulting and and uh, governance compliance work um, as a consultant, and then I went into work for Standard Insurance Company for eight or nine years. And in the midst of that, I I've always been you know into entrepreneur stuff. I had a construction company i did a lot of stuff on the side i did a lot of things that i failed at there and we uh and then um i one uh i i decided i was going to start making uh, personal hunting films just stuff for me and buddies and mm-hmm. i started to learn how to edit and film and one thing led to another i really wanted to make something i thought would be cool uh of out of a hunt we had Whatever the hunt is, each year we'd film some stuff and we just put it out there and share it. Yeah. Um. And there was no goal to like start a business or to to do anything with it. And then over time, I I uh, started having friends come up to me, and like, how do you set up your bow and how do you hunt and what do you do? And I found myself explaining things to people. What do you eat? I'm big a diet and fitness, and so I was explaining that and there. And I thought, you know, I should just do a podcast, even if only. Friends of mine and family and other people nerd out on it. Yeah. That's cool. And so I kind of just did it as a hobby and for fun. And I did the filmmaking and the podcast. I ran into Aaron Snyder, who works for Kafaru International, mm-hmm. uh, part owner there, and uh, but followed Aaron for years doing backpack hunting. I'd always read his gear reviews and I'd go buy all the crap he said to go right. buy. And then I'd <laughs> go, go hunt. And, um, so I met Aaron one day and at the Sportsman Show in Oregon. And I said, hey, you want to do podcast? He's like, do you do a podcast? I'm like, well, I will tomorrow. <laughs> do, you, do you want to do it? He's like, yeah. So he was my first guest. We sat down and we just kind of.
1: Talk about fate.
5: Yeah, it's very interesting. We sat down and we just chatted it up. And I learned a lot of things. I had so many questions for the guy. Like yeah. floorless shelter, boots, and you know backpacks how do you adjust it how how do you load it you know and stuff that and I had been doing fairly well on my own backpack hunting we'd gone into eagle caps a couple of times and gone on some pretty deep and remote hikes and hunts but uh this is a guy who spent his life doing it you know and this is me doing it when I get vacation time and Mm -hmm. I I geeked out on it but I I was nowhere near Snyder's level and so it just took off. Conversation was great. I published it and and then uh I got all these emails asking for another one and so I did more and after about a month Aaron Snyder called me up and he said, "Hey, how'd that podcast go?" And I said it's like it, it was really good. That episode did well and he's like, "Do you want to do another one?" And I said, "Yeah, if you if you'll do another one." And so we did another one and same thing happened. More people liked it and we did another one, another one, and pretty soon we just started doing one every week. And uh, it went from, I don't know, it just went from a few people following and just exponentially grew. Yeah, Snowballing. Yeah. So that sort of surprised me at yeah. first. And I had to make a decision. Do I keep putting content out and keep doing this? or Because it's starting to cut into my day job. Right. Like I already had a good job that paid me well. So what do you do? And it got to a point where I had, um, enough partners and companies who, who liked what we were doing that came to us and said, Hey, what's it going to take? So you can do this full time. Yeah. Um, and we talked about it and, uh, it was, a took us me a while and I, I was fascinated by your story on how you made the jump Mm -hmm. and went all in with wired to hunt and the process. And I followed that closely and I kind of. Took other people's advice who'd done the same. And at some point, I just jumped. You got to take a leap, right? You, I think if you have something you're passionate about and you want to do, it didn't come without cost. I mean, yeah. I gave up a lot of things to oh, do yeah, it. sure. But I gained a lot of things, and I don't regret it. And uh, I'm really excited about
1: where it might lead it's down awesome. the road. That's I always get such a kick out of seeing people chase that passion and be willing to obviously put in the work, but then also step out on a limb a little bit because it is outside of the norm. It is different than the safety and security. And there's nothing wrong with that type of job. There's nothing wrong with it at all. But for some people, if you know that deep down inside of you, that's not what fulfills you and is not going to fill you with life and excitement and passion, and you know, it's something else to then have the, just the, the gall to go for it. Um, I really respect and, and get excited to see that. So it's been neat to be able to see you take that leap and uh, do it smashingly well. I appreciate that. I've had a, a
5: lot of support along the way. And Aaron Snyder has been, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, every, it, it hasn't been a, um, a partnership without problems, right? Like right. you, everybody, everything, but, uh, you know, Aaron's like a brother now and, there's just very few people that I, I enjoy spending time with as much as Aaron. And I think that comes out on the podcast. Yeah. And uh, and that matters to people. That's good. So
1: that's perfect. So real quick, if you had to give like the fifteen second mm-hmm. spiel of, of what Gritty Bowman is, for those listening, what are they gonna get? What are they gonna learn? What are they what should they come to expect if they're not already within your world? Um, we are an outdoor, like a backpacking backcountry
5: bow hunting podcast primarily. So that's kind of it in a nutshell, but we talk, I, I've never put rule like rules around our topics. So we've talked about everything. It's really a life podcast to me. So we talk about everything from entrepreneurship and business to fitness and 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 diet and and exercise to hunting. Yeah, I thought that was cool. You guys did like a
1: business book podcast. Yeah, like he reads the same stuff I do.
5: Yeah, <laughs> we've been. Uh, that's been a huge hit. It's, it's been some of our highest downloaded episodes. Isn't that interesting have been podcasts about life books. Right, like uh, Extreme Ownership. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and ego is Jacob, the enemy. Right. Um, those have been yes. Great stuff, and uh, so I'm pretty excited about. I mean, all of it's been great, but I've ha- I've received a ton of emails where people are like I love to hear you talk about hunting. I love to hear you and Aaron just hang out. Yeah, but I love to hear you talk about life more, and so that's been a that's cool. sort of a thing for me where we haven't done a lot of episodes around that. But you look at Joe Joe Rogan; he's a good friend, and oh, yeah. he, he goes out and does shows on whatever he feels like. And I feel like that's what Gritty can
1: do. Yeah. Like, that's cool. It's mine, right? So I can do it on whatever, whatever you I want. want. You know, so <laughs> why not? Yeah. Well, can I talk about whatever I want that on this one? What, <laughs> I, what I want to talk on this one right now mm-hmm. is about what brought you to listen to Wired Hunt originally, as okay. I understand it. Yes. You told me that you started listening to Wired Hunt because you were, you were a blacktail hunter out in the far Pacific Northwest. And you were finding that the whitetail stuff we were talking about somehow was relevant to you. So mm-hmm. explain that. That that really intrigued me to hear that what we were talking about in the Mich- in Michigan or the South or the East could be applicable to a totally different kind of subspecies in in Oregon.
5: Right. So um, I grew up kind of in that uh, western. Oregon airspace just uh, in Oregon city, South of Portland. It's pretty urban area. There's, you know, it's all private land, you know, five acre lots here and there and, and so forth. And then it gets a little denser in some places, but there's deer running around the neighborhood, just like whitetail back, back East, right? Midwest. Yeah. But the black tail in the city, they're the only difference really is they're very nocturnal, like extremely insanely nocturnal. Um, where I think whitetail are a little more, except when they get to be, it's from what I can understand, like when they get to be monsters, Yeah, a lot of them don't come out till after yeah. dark. They figured it
1: out, yep. right? They, it's the reason why they got to be big and old.
5: Right. And I figured that out with what, blacktail were the same, and I had to f- decide. Um, I was trying to figure out how to hunt them. You know, I, and, and it's interesting because I did a film um, called uh, – so I don't remember my own <laughs> Trophy Places. Okay. I think is what it's called. Um, and uh, I did a, a Blacktail film. And uh, it was on Solo Hunters. Uh, oh, Tim, oh, Tim put yeah, it on Solo that. Hunter. I yeah, did see that. The, so uh, that episode is is up there on, on, on Solo Hunter TV. On You can watch it on his channel, YouTube, yeah. or my website. But what happened was, and, and it kind of documents that story, but what happened is I would – I, I grew up in on this acreage in the middle of nowhere in Oregon and we had about 40 acres and then the neighbors all had acreage and and uh I never saw a buck hmm. the whole time growing up like there's like nothing with horns like never. spikes you know here and there and, and I'd see does and I knew there were deer there but I just never never registered right and my dad we would all go back east and we'd uh, to the east side of Oregon and we'd hunt mule deer and elk it was just like what we did every season what I didn't realize was there were monster deer right in my backyard really and so game cameras are invented mm-hmm. right and people are using those and i get a game camera i remember talking to a friend of mine who was a I went to his house one day and we hadn't talked much since high school go over to his house and i i looked and this is years later right after high school and i and I, he's got these beautiful blacktail bucks mounted on his wall i'm like whoa that those are just amazing you know they're kind of small you know but, they, but they, they are they're amazing super and he's cool like looking. they're giant i'm like well they're kind of small i mean a lot of the deer i see aren't that small <laughs> and he's like it's not a mule deer it's a it's a blacktail you know and uh it just i had never it had never really been on my radar wow and so at that point i started paying attention and they're big deer uh on his wall i started to realize the difference between Blacktail, Colombian back blacktail, mm-hmm. and like a, a white tail and a mule deer, and yeah. really paying attention, and, um, and then I wanted to hunt them, and we had all that acreage; it was it was ours, so we we hung game cameras up all over them, Uncle, Aunt, and Uncle's place, my place, and um, and for the for, for like a year, I didn't see any bucks, nothing, and then right when the rut was coming around, all of a sudden. I started seeing bucks and I remember seeing them for, it was like 11 months. Like we had put those cameras up like around December and I didn't see any deer with antlers. Wow. And, uh, I still haven't figured out the place. Um, and, and all I know is that from like the last week of October through Thanksgiving, you yep. know, anything can happen.
1: Interesting. Very, I mean, just like white tails.
5: Yep. And that they're, Uh, the bucks there's some that I think live right there and I think there are some that you know wander in from far away yeah um but what I learned from your podcast is so I started trying to I started to correlate that man there's a big there it seems like the things that you're talking about in whitetail country would apply and I knew we had done some tree stand hunting in some mountain areas and it's it it's like um, it's not like there, there are blacktail around that you can hunt up in the mountains mm-hmm. that act a lot more like I would think like a Kansas whitetail. Hmm. And you walk out and you rattle some antlers and stuff, and they're kind of charging in. They or? come charging in and stuff like that. And so I kind of I had done that, and then but I knew they were at my house. Yeah. And I was like, hmm, how, you know, here I'm up in the Cascades and mountains, and I'm over by Mount Hood, and I'm trying to hunt these blacktails versus in my in the city, more or less. I mean, where there's these big bucks running around, I see them on camera at night. So I started listening to your podcast and started taking bits and pieces from it, and um, and it was really neat to take parts like scent control. It's just not something a lot of guys on the west really paid attention right, to. Right. You know, putting on some rubber boots. I mean, it's all basic stuff sure. for your listeners, but for me, it was like revolutionary, right? That's so interesting. And so, um, a lot of guys that hunted blacktails, at least where I grew up, they, they walked, they still hunted. That's how they did it. And they would walk around on the ground and even rattling, they didn't do a lot of it, you know? And there are guys who were killing big blacktails and, uh, and I was reading their books as well, but I, I found that I really enjoyed listening to your podcast and taking those tactics back into the woods. So where to hang up cameras uh I started to figure out what staging areas were yeah. we started to you started to um kind of open my eyes to um deer behavior yeah uh QDM and and we started putting uh, apple trees and different things out on our property we wow. we logged some things and kind of tried to mimic what <laughs> it would be like to have a yeah. better property so it's mine nobody else can come on it so yeah. I wanted to make it so so it was uh my own little paradise of deer activity, right, and so I started building my land to kind of suit that and it took about six years, and the deer um right now you know it's been three years I listened to it three years since then um and and uh since I've really hunted that area and Man, there's some good bucks running around now that yeah. weren't there before. And really, I think what it is, is we just attract a lot of does to the yeah. property, yeah. which then brings those bucks in during the rut. Um, and I'm just about hunting over does during the rut. That's yeah. all I got.
1: <laughs> so are you just setting up near like doe bedding areas and that kind of thing and waiting for them to cruise through? or
3: Yes. And you're,
1: you're able to identify that kind of stuff similar to what we do in the whitetail world? Like where the does are bedding, I'm sure you kind of know. Yep. Some general yep. areas. I kind
5: of know where they're bedded, and I know where they go to feed, you and know. and uh, and I don't think we have the deer densities like what you guys have. Sure. But and and blacktail definitely have a certain personality and characteristic about them that make them, I think, different quite a bit different from a so white what tail. What
1: is that? Good question. <laughs> But before we get to that, we're going to take a quick break for our weekly whitetail wisdom from our friends at Whitetail Properties. And my good buddy from South Dakota, producer Spencer
3: Newharth, will take it from here. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tom James, a land specialist out of central Indiana. And Tom is going to be telling us about what to look for when your goal is to flip a property
6: Okay. Great question. Um, well, first and foremost, looking at a good county in your state or even a good part of the county that is known for producing um, better quality deer. And that's uh, typically easily found out in the, in the state's record book program. So those counties are typically more highly sought after by buyers um, a, as opposed to you know maybe counties that are off out of that parameter. So number one, a good county maybe even a better part of the county that uh, is known for producing better deer secondly i would look for property that you can pick up right at market value and slightly under market value obviously as a home run but uh, make sure you do your homework find out what the comps and local local land is selling for and that mixed recreational ground and that would be timber and maybe some pasture uh, some tillable ground mixed in so number two good value at at the current market price and number three look at Uh, sometimes an often overlooked aspect of timber that people don't know a lot about is um, the quality of the hardwood species that are on the property. If you can find 18 inch and uh, larger diameter trees in there, specifically white oaks, red oaks, walnut, cherry, um, sugar, maple, the white Oak market is extremely hot right now. And anything above that is going to, that size range is going to return dividends that you could use applying to paying the property back off and also doing some great habitat work in the process by opening up the uh, the canopy and getting some good habitat
3: work going on in there. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tom currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com/james. That's J A M E S.
1: So okay. We are we're in a very different place than we were 2 seconds ago, Brian, cuz right. a second ago you and me were talking and it was nice and quiet. And we were talking about black tails versus white tails, and now it's windy, and there's guns being shot behind us. What happened?
5: Well, we're at the, the <laughs> Sitka Converge event here in uh, <clears throat> Montana, and uh, I had to step out from the podcast for another obligation, and now we're back at it, but now we're out on range day.
1: Yeah, it's day um, two of Converge. Yep. We're in Paradise Valley. Sitka
5: Converge. Did I say conversion? Converge?
1: I, converge. Yeah. I, think, I think you had it. How, yeah. per, how nice is it out here, though? It's beautiful. Yeah.
5: It's, it's very nice. This whole state is incredible. You know, I 100% no, of, that. no offense. I'm going to throw this out there, though. Whenever I'm out here, I wonder, how come those guys on the east don't move out west? Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know. You're telling me. <laughs> you are telling me. What, My wife and what's I. let from there, Exactly. Every time we come out here, my wife and I have that conversation. Yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff there and really good people a, yeah, and oh yeah, family and friends. But, you know, we, we keep on getting closer and closer. I mean, we spend about three months a year out here now. Yeah. So we're getting there. But um, but those whitetails, yes. they do kind of have my heart. Oh, and dude. Yeah, the heart, yeah. I
5: mean, it sounds kind of among my family and, and friends that I left back in Oregon. The blacktail hunting is sorely missed. Yeah. and i I kind of want the whole maybe I- increased level of of mule deer and access to mule deer and uh, big mule deer and elk hunting in Colorado to sort of you know uh be a salve on the wound of of not <laughs> hunting blacktails uh, but they're so different uh, I still miss the blacktail it, it doesn't make up for it you
1: yeah. know have you I mean, how's that move been
5: <laughs> it's been really good i I, um, Colorado is kind of the perfect mix of everything for us, you know, and because I'm doing Gritty Bowman full time, I'm allowed to, I can kind of live wherever I want to live. Yep. And in the past, you know, I, I, I commuted into a, a major mo- metropolitan area for years. So I kind of needed to live near a city that was big and, you know, it, it kind of, like most people, I, I didn't have the, the ability to live in a remote area of the united states in the country you know as as much as i do now so right. i chose evergreen colorado and it's it's, a, it's an awesome place it's not for everybody because you know it's a commute if you're working in denver area to commute it's a good it's a good drive how long drives it oh probably 40 45 minutes if, okay. the, if the traffic's good
1: do you still do you feel like you're a little outside of the the chaos of denver though
5: oh yeah no i'm in the mountains it's like this that's awesome like where we're at right now. That so. is. I'm jealous. Yeah, it's it's new for me. The weather is uh, the reason I left the Northwest. The Too bit, rainy. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to uh, be out in the sun a lot more. So I, I yeah. I have heard very good things about that area. Yeah. Good
1: weather, great access to lots of country, and lots of
5: backpacking and hiking. Yeah. And Aaron's there, and Kafaru is there, and we do so much together that it's, it's nice to it, have that. Yeah. It's just a great place for us to work together
1: and do things so so we, we were we were just talking about blacktails and how you were able to pull some whitetail info from yes you know listening to what we were talking about with our whitetail hunting back in the day and you were applying that to blacktails but just recently this winter uh-huh. you went and chased whitetails for the first time was that the first time yes it was the first time so I want to hear about that how did that go <laughs> so okay so I and have, Aaron Aaron went too right yes okay. Aaron and
5: I went to Alabama and our friend Brian Broderick he um, lives down there in Alabama and he he if you look him up on Instagram he's uh, Lost Arrow Films and he's a he's a really really cool dude and he has some access to to land back there his land that um, where they it's only uh, you know only a few people get to to come on it each year they manage it they're careful they kill a bunch of does but they 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 try not to kill any bucks, so it's a managed property, right? So you're spoiled when you're walking in there because it's different than a lot of other places. Yeah. Um, How big is it?
1: Is it a lot of property? Uh, gosh,
5: I I don't know. It's it's uh it's large. I mean, I think it took us in a in a you know in a buggy it took us like 30 minutes to cross the whole thing. You know. So, so. yeah pretty big yeah um and uh so they just have a few people that hunted and so we went out there well the interesting thing about it was it's february where we went and so alabama has a february rut hunt and it's hard for me to picture those critters in the rut in february and by then everybody else is kind of all the other deer are done oh yeah you know and this pocket in alabama is like ramping up they're going nuts bizarre so we showed up there and i hunted uh whitetails once years and years ago in idaho and um and uh during the rut in idaho and 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 back then maybe 12 years ago 10 years ago there wasn't a lot of i mean it was sort of like whitetails were just kind of booming in that area um but anyway, it wasn't like hunting them like how I pictured hunting whitetails. I, I didn't see that many.
1: Were you tree stand hunting them or like stalking yeah, we, around? Yeah, we did.
5: We did okay. a little both, you know. But we went out. So we go to Alabama, and um, the deer there are – are. so the thing that stood out to me, right, was the sheer number of deer is crazy. Like there's just, there's just so many whitetails, and they're like rabbits. They just <laughs> run everywhere. There's just – does fawns some bucks and and this is a granted it's during the rut on a piece of property that's not heavily pressured uh-huh. um and where they select just a few bucks a year off of it so it it was a special place especially for brian he grew up there
1: Oh, i didn't realize that that's cool
5: yeah so we went out and we um uh the deer so whitetail are jumpy like, true story skittish jumpy, like, it's not like blacktail at all. Um, you know, um, we would climb into the tree stand, and a blacktail you could almost, and and maybe it's just because the hunting pressure is a lot different there. I mean, that's that, I'm um, obviously that's part of it. The way the the white tail kind of get jumpy, um, looking up looked up a lot like they were yeah. scanning the trees you don't you do not get that huh. uh with with blacktail. they they almost never look up you, you can get away with a lot of movement
1: and i guess a lot of maybe just not a lot of people are tree stand hunting yes in the black range. i would Is that i would accurate? agree with
5: that and i would just think there's not a lot of people hunting that species in general, in general. uh so there's a lower deer density and then there's fewer hunters okay so um for whatever reason, they, but one thing I will say is that blacktail do not behave the same, I think, regardless. Uh, so, um, the way a blacktail moves is it, it ta- in general, this is a broad generalization. I mean, from my experience, okay, in an sure. urban center, a blacktail will take two or three steps and stop and just stand for a long time. And then it'll eat a little bit. And it'll just stand and look, and it'll take a few steps, and it seems it's very calm. <laughs> it's like chill, and it's just kind of it's on high alert, but it's not jumpy at all. It's not flinching. It's not jer- ducking its head. It's not jerking its head around. Like, was there what, what did, was there something behind me? Right. It doesn't have like a complex. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean.
1: <laughs> like, like some of the deer I see. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like
5: a white like these whitetail yeah. were, like crack addicts. It's so you know? always heads
1: popping. The heads popping up. They're jerking
5: yeah. up. They're looking around. They're looking behind. Oh, yeah. them. They're jumping. Everybody's got everybody on edge. On One, edge. One's turning left, one's turning right, mm-hmm. and it's like, "What did you see?" I don't know. What did you see? Mm-hmm. And <laughs> and then they're looking up in the tree, and that kind of spastic, intense activity was very different than what you see with blacktail. So the blacktail will stand there, and they'll move, and then when they hear something, they literally will will just stop and freeze, and they'll look in the direction, but they won't they won't move. They'll sit there, and they'll sit there sometimes. What seems like eternity, and they'll just be frozen, and they will let a predator or let someone—they will just stand there while something walks by them, um, not never giving away their position, never running. They'll just sit there and be a statue. Um, where a whitetail, tail, um, what I observed, like I'm in a tree stand, and uh, you know, Aaron or somebody would come. Dr- come walking up through the woods to come and get me at, toward the end of our afternoon hunt and that whitetail would jerk its head up see something coming and book it Yeah, and uh, a blacktail in the same situation in general would freeze and just just kind of wait for that person to walk by without being seen <laughs> and sometimes it will take a few steps and when they leave they tend to take they, te- they sneak off they they just kind of sneak off and they hide behind a tree and they 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 don't run the same way and so um, it's it's a they're very cautious deer and they tend to if they if something does come in they kind of they have all their trails it I don't from what I understand with a lot of black tails especially in the small urban centers where I was at they kind of live and reside in a 300 yard area wow for most of the year so really small range so very very small so they don't really have a need especially old bucks to go very far they get up they eat they drink a little and they and it's right there there's so much abundant growth and food and stuff for these bucks that they don't have to really roam much and and from some of the studies i've heard they just they won't go very far at all um whereas and i'm talking about the willamette valley talking about coastal blacktail a little more so than i am talking about maybe northern california or further eastward where they're kind of edge box mixed with mule deer genetics and stuff like that
1: so how do blacktails the coastal blacktails that you were hunting compare with something like a sitka blacktail so i've hunted sitka
5: blacktail on prince of wales island a few times and um a couple of times and uh i've been to prince of wales bear hunting in the spring and I've seen uh, when I'm not hunting blacktails so I've seen them a bit and studied them some I would say there's a lot of similarities um uh, uh the the older bucks I think on uh, the sitka bucks are I don't know they they're very um uh, they they kind of move a lot the same like they're they, they check their trail they move a little slower but i would say that this sitka blacktail are less they they'll move out faster from my experience <laughs> you know um it's kind of hard to say because sitka blacktail where i was at they some of them i think have never even seen a human
4: right very so different that way
5: in that sense they didn't it's hard to observe their behavior cuz they they're like, oh, they're very curious. And so they just stare at you and you stare at them and they don't run away. It's it's odd. So, huh. um,
1: because they just don't know what.
5: Yeah. Behaviorally, I don't know that I can talk to, about Sitka blacktail as much. Um, I hear they're very aggressive in the, during the rut, hmm. but so are Colombian blacktail. You know, a lot of people think that you can't rattle them in or that they don't b- respond like a whitetail. And, um, I black. I've seen some knockdown, drag out, brutal blacktail uh, fights, and really? Cameron Haynes has a video, a couple of videos, um, on on his uh, blacktail film that he made a few years back. Uh, he has some footage he got from somebody where two blacktails were going at each other. They try to kill each other. Wow. You know, I've seen some blacktails just go after each other. Um, that's something any species. When you see that, that's mm-hmm. pretty wild. Yeah, faces are in the dirt, and they're just try, they are trying to kill each other. So, um, the other thing that I noticed with with back to the whitetail thing is their their bodies are so. at Least this is Alabama, right? Right. So, um, they're slight, like they they jump and they move kind of. When a whitetail doe, especially when it runs, it sort of. Bounces back and forth and the front legs land in a different spot than the back legs. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I like, do. it's I do. just a very bouncy kind of thing. And uh um blacktail does move like mule deer. Hmm. They move a lot more like a mule deer. White, white tail are their own thing, man. They they don't look like anything mule deer or, or blacktail. So blacktail are stocky, you know, a little shorter. They don't have the biggest set of antlers, but they they still have a stout neck and a and stout shoulders, and they can still be a stocky animal. Sick of blacktail, same thing. They they're very stocky and boxy looking. They they're thick. They just look cool. They like do. I see they, these
1: deer, in those dark foreheads, and the especially I feel like whenever I see a sickle blacktail, hunt, hunts raining, so mm-hmm. those antlers are glistening and kind of orangey browny. I've shot a
5: number of blacktail bucks with red. Antlers it's like so cool, bright like red because of the trees that they're rubbing on, right? So it kind of taints and colors their antlers in a dark, dark brown red color. And they have a double throat patch
1: often, uh-huh. nice where they got
5: the white two white patches and then they're coloring. I, I honestly think, and I love mule deer and I love whitetail, and um, it's sort of for me, a, it's like a pretty woman is a pretty woman, uh, whether she's black white asian a pretty girl is a pretty girl fair a, enough a beautiful deer is a beautiful deer regardless of whether it's blacktail mule deer yeah. or white tail but for me i feel like blacktail colombian blacktail are the prettiest of them all for me their ears the way that they're set the stockiness of it the coloring of their coat the the white patches the black top cap and it just the all the coloring and, and just the, sh- the the ears in proportion to the antlers and stuff i just i just think they're a beautiful animal yeah. if you're getting a, a colombian blacktail and you're just mounting the antlers you missed out because the beauty really to me is in the shoulder mount the shape of the body the head the ears all that kind of stuff it just yeah. it's
1: amazing so you noticed a whole lot of differences between these white tails and blacktails and some similarities but was it fun yeah, I mean... Was it as fun?
5: What I... Oh, dude. The whitetail scene is... Um, so, back to their behavior. A blacktail, uh, generally, most of the time, especially in these city centers, they don't come out until till dark. I mean, they're so nocturnal. Honestly, I might get... For all the photos I get, uh, I'll hang like eight or nine tr- cameras on my land, and I would have pictures of bucks... Uh, the same ones every year that I'd see every year and then there would be bucks that I saw once and never saw again. Yeah. Which I think is common across the United States, right? Yep. But what would happen would be nine out of like for every buck I saw at into the dark, you know, if I got 10 bucks in the dark, I'd see one in the daylight. Yeah. And there were there were bucks that I, you know with all my cameras that were up there were bucks that I would see once every other year on a camera during daylight hours. So you're, you're saying you're like, like I would hunt 14 days in a row on these different spots for a glimpse at one mature buck, one. And there would be years where I didn't see a single one
1: a marathon with a very small rewards. you're you're just you're
5: just out there it's a we call it we joke around it's like a unicorn yeah you're looking for a unicorn and i remember scout haugen talking about black tails i mean cameron is kind of an uh an anomaly in the sense well not an anomaly but there are a lot of guys that hunt in lane county and kind of more uh down in that area eugene and um the deer seem to move a little better during daytime there's higher population some of the biggest pope and young bucks have been taken in that area um but uh up where i was at closer to portland oregon um it was pretty tough to get a deer out during daylight as much as so a lot of guys will jump in their rig and they will drive south and they will hunt south in the in the unit the in oregon the hunt would start a week later or earlier, rather, I'm sorry, a week to, to more than a week earlier down south than it does up north, where I was at, um, and uh, it's just a just a different animal, dude. They just don't come out except for at night, and so you're waiting for that one glimpse. So I'm in Alabama, and you contrast that, and there are bucks like just running the trees back and forth chasing does you know and you're seeing stuff constantly like there's a buck over on here and one goes running there and it goes under your stand and and at the same time they're looking up every now and then and scanning so you're like vigilant where, you Yeah. Know, so isn't they're
1: like, on edge and you're on edge
5: yeah and they're fighting you know you'll see and hear them fighting and going at it and grunting wow. they're making very vocal um in alabama it was just like action 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 And you might, you, when you sit in a blacktail stand, you're kind of, you're, in general, that does happen. That's happened to me. I've had a couple of magic days where I come across bucks just fighting and going crazy. And, and, uh, but then there are just days where it's dead. Um, and it's only for a seven to 10 day window of of brilliant, you know, rut activity and it's gone and it's all nighttime again. Where in Alabama it was like, Broderick was telling us as long as they don't get too spooked you know as long as there's not a lot of human pressure in there um, they just keep cruising around and fighting each other and running around and doing their thing and and uh, the aggressiveness of them and their daytime movement is just night and day compared to what I've experienced with blacktail so that daytime movement to me is a game changer because you can't hunt them if if, if they're not moving during the daytime you can't kill them you know it's not legal yep and so it's a little tricky so w- w- that's just and i think probably the those old old whitetails they've they figured that out they run yep. at night yep. they they move at night or so
1: very 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 tight to their bedrooms yeah and so you're
5: cover. you're trying to find a buck that's just maybe and is in a moment of me- weakness and makes that mistake and there was a buck i was after for like five years and i called him lefty big black buck and he had this big hook off his off the base of his antler that just came straight out and it was a super cool deer and he just seemed to get bigger and bigger every year and uh and uh i um i missed him once it was getting really dark it was pretty low light and i was chill and i took the shot and shot right over his back and uh that was the only time i got a shot at him there were other times i could have shot at him yeah and uh it's and i have you to thank for that because really I um I had had this difficulty trying to kill kill him, and I and I had tried everything. So I'm listening to your podcast, and I'm trying to figure out the the thing was is the way that I would hunt him is this is small acreage, like eight acres, you know. Real smooth, now there's yeah. other people's property right next to mine, and uh, they liked my land. We had some apple trees and stuff like that, and we I would put apples out um, in a couple of spots, so I knew they were feeding here. And I knew they were betting over here. But he would show up, he would follow some does during the rut. They would run they'd come right to where those apples were. It didn't do me any good to sit where the apples were because the bucks wouldn't come. They'd linger back. They'd stay back. Yeah. And so the does would come in and they'd eat and the buck would just back be back there and he would I and every now and then I could see a glimpse of him where he'd grunt. Well, he was plenty huntable over there. Um it just, that was somewhere between the, the bedding area and the feeding area, right? And it was kind of hard to, f- so I started putting cameras up right by the feeding area and then further back and further back and tried to follow where he was going, mm-hmm. where he was trying to figure out where he was coming from. And it, it turned out to seem pretty random, but what I figured out was there was this place where he liked to stage every night or every, yeah not every night, but often. And if I got on that tree line, He would be in that during daytime uh, as he would kind of sit there and wait. And as soon as it got too dark for me to shoot, he would burst out and come out and hang out. But just he (laughs) would not ever come out. And uh, so I ended up moving right up to the edge of that, into that staging area and setting up a couple of stands in there. And then I was getting like, then I was actually seeing him move in daylight hours where I could shoot him. I just never got a good shot.
1: How much fun, though, is that chess match when you're just Dude, getting these little details it. It and slowly moving? It. And I love and that And it
5: stuff. haunts me today because he's the only, he's the one buck I really wanted to get all those years. Yeah. And I never I never got him. He just disappeared, and I never saw him again. Um, there was another buck, though, that I did shoot years later after watching him for like three or four years. Four years. And I shot him and uh it's weird how you get attached to a certain deer Mm -hmm. and i was actually after i shot him i was really bummed in a way because it's like now i don't get the chases over yeah it's like the woods are a little bit emptier yeah for sure i I experienced a sense of loss by that you know and it's not like i have where i was at there was a ton of deer you know and that's one thing i learned early on is uh with with those blacktail bucks um if you shoot, like, a resident deer that's kind of hanging out in that in your 5, 8 acres, right, uh, and he's 2 years old or something, it's going to take a while to get another buck to take his place because those other bucks, they don't move that much. Yeah. So, so they're
1: not finding this new empty spot, you're saying. Exactly.
5: They don't. They're kind of like, well, this is the spot I grew up, mm-hmm. and I like it just fine. Why would I leave? And th- their personalities are such that they seem to just stay. And so even though you've now shot a couple of bucks and now there's this theoretically there's this space for him to move into for feed and shelter and you know something like that they don't seem to take advantage of it unless they're born there (laughs) so i i didn't see a lot of territorial uh like i didn't we'd hang cameras up all over our friends properties and anthony was a big white tail black tail killer and you know, I'm sure other people had other experiences, but in Oregon City where I was at, it was kind of the common thing. And so certain areas, though, were really hot with bucks and some not. Um, and, and my particular area just uh, seemed to, for whatever reason, um, didn't have a lot of shelter and stuff for, or something for the big bucks. Um, but they would come there during the rut. And so I had to work with what I what i owned and what Mm -hmm. i could hunt you know and we i hunted over does that was my strategy yeah yeah smart find the does and then when they come in heat the game was on and any moment he could make a he or the a couple other bucks could make a mistake and you what's cool what keeps you going is you see them every day like every time you get your game card out and you check your three or four cameras they're on there every time that is fun. so you're like well he came in to the stand 20 minutes after i left and you get that dark.
1: little like bump of like yep. excitement you know he's a little more hope you know he's, he's there. still there
5: and so yeah um i found that that so back to how i hunted though i would i had a trail that um so my friend chris pasqua He, um, he owns a, he, he, he runs, is it September yet? Okay. It's a, it's a, um, Facebook page and our group and, and, uh, he's a big time white blacktail hunter and he shot a a buck he called daddy and, uh, it's a big deer. I don't, it was like 145 inches, I think, or something like that. Blacktail? Uh Uh-huh. Wow. Monster, just huge. So he was on the podcast and we talked about this a lot and, and it's like, it's in a city center where this deer kind of, I mean, it's a, it's. It's not like it's in the mountains, you Isn't know? a big blacktail like 110? Yeah, yeah. I mean, 145 inches is... Colin shot a 149 or 50-inch buck. I mean... Wow. And these are bona fide blacktails down, like, right there in the Willamette. Like, um... Anyway, he shoots this buck, and it's a giant. I mean, as far as blacktails go, it's a giant. And he... He did this same thing. Like, we would walk in, and there's a trail that you could hit. And I learned this the hard way you walk in and, and you have your tree stand. So I'd walk in on that trail and I would put apples down. And the same thing with, uh, Chris, he'd put apples down. Uh, A lot of guys will use apples. It's perfectly legal in Oregon. And, and, uh, all we're doing is like on a five acre piece, we're just trying to attract some deer into that area. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I didn't even hunt the apples most of the time because it didn't do me any good because the, when i wanted to, i could shoot a young buck but it's not what i wanted and uh the big bucks i i've yet to see a big buck eat the apples i put on the ground huh. in, in in like 8 years
1: i feel like that's really similar to i mean texas is different but mm-hmm. i think a lot of places where you bait those mature bucks just don't they don't want to come all the way into it
5: no the does do and i mm-hmm. think it's because they have fawns to feed and they're more desperate they're hungrier they they yep. You know, those bucks can be selfish. They can breed, and then they can just go lay down, rest, and eat all day long. Other sources. So they don't take the risk. But I would, we would walk in about uh, every three or four days. And it's right, it's in my backyard. So I'd walk in, drop some apples, walk out. And uh, just a five-gallon bucket of a few apples. And as you do that throughout, you know, July, August, September, October, November, you know, it's just putting a few out every other week or as i get closer to the season i'm trying to keep it more stocked and there's apple orchards all over and so there's a there was a whole ton of apples on every piece of property surrounding me and so you just go fill up trash cans full of apples that wow. just are already on the ground if i had access to hunt one of those like a lot of guys do i just hunt under the apple tree and i wouldn't have to do, jump, drop right them, you know so, anyway, what I found was as long as I stayed on that trail, those bucks and those deer—they didn't care. They didn't care that I came in and out all the time, and they would come right up to the apples in the trail, and the big bucks would stay in the they area. Just got used to it. Yep, You're going back and forth the same place, and they absolutely yeah conditioned and then, them. And then as soon as I, there's a couple times where like I made a shot on a deer, uh, or or I explored off trail. And that proved to be devastating because as soon as I went off trail and left some scent in the area surrounding it, they knew it right away. And they would just start coming in at night only. We went 100% nocturnal for two or three weeks, so just go nocturnal like that. Yikes. And then then your season's blown. So I was paranoid to leave trail ever Right. And so you get a couple of places that you get them used to and they're okay with you as long as you're doing the same thing all the time. But as soon as we started going in other areas and went off trail, your season could be shot. It'd be like hosed. And so when I listened to your podcast, I was like, well, I need to find a way to, and I learned methods for, for, you know, rubber boots and and how to do scent and minimize how minimize that clothes. pressure yeah a little just bit. to try to keep as much yep. scent in the area out of there as possible and um, but you talked about some staging areas and so the next year i i started walking into some of these areas and setting up tree stands where i thought it would uh where i'd get closer and to in, in to intercept a deer on its way through a spot on the way to where the apples were there were no apples there but uh, I would put a camera there, and uh, and I started to see, I started to get into boxing daylight. And it had been like seven years where I had hunted and, and just hadn't been doing it right, you know. And uh, still, it was really tough, and I never got uh, a really good daytime opportunity. It was always still low light, but um, I shot a lot of really great, you know, three and four point bucks that are that are three years old, you know, four years old. Yeah. Uh, I never really, all, all that time hunting blacktails, I never really, on my own land, I never really got a poke at a, at, at the bucks I wanted, that I knew were there. The, the real big boys. Yep. Part of it was, you know, <clears throat> it's this dilemma, right? You go in and you sit your stand two days, three days, four days, five days in a row. Now, if your camera is telling you that a mature blacktail buck will walk by your tree stand during daylight hours once in every 10 days. <laughs> then you got a 1 out of 10 days chance, right? Yeah. But I think every, I see where you're going with this. <laughs> yeah, the, so you got a 10% chance every time you're in that stand. That t- today might be those one of those 10 days. So in theory, if you sat in that stand every day for 10 days, you get your chance. Right? But but you're stinking up the joint exactly. every time you do it. So you're in this conundrum where you're like, yeah. "Do I go in there and and just sit it every every day for 10 days, 12 days, 15 days in a row in the same spot? Or do you just gamble and go in once every five days and just hope you're... It could be five years before yeah. you have the time in the stand where you, That's you the increase the odds.
1: That's the trick. And I feel like on the whitetail side, the way like that I've always tried to... There's no perfect answer to that, but it's okay. Think of where I have that best chance. So if you think there's the 10% best chance in this stand... And then it's you wait for some set of conditions Mm -hmm. that's going to give you an increase in that. And you don't go in until you have the best set. So on the one day when you're actually going to have a 16% chance because the cold front hit, then that's your day you go in there. Or just like you said, every day you go in there, it goes from 10 to 9 to 8 to 7 to 6. So I'm like, I'd rather do three hunts and get 16, 13, and 10% versus 10987654321.
5: Right. And that's, that's tough though. And that's tough, and that's what I started doing later on cuz I cared more about getting a big buck, you know, just the challenge, the mm-hmm. unicorn that we call it, you know, I'm trying to find that unicorn in the woods. But it's 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 a tough decision to make, but I thought what I what I felt like if I could if, if I could go in there and keep my eyes on cameras, I started to get a feel for does and heat, right? And and you, it's hard to tell if you're looking at the same dough. Right. Right? Because they all kind of look the same. Very tough. But I started start to get a feel for um, how many does were out there and does and fawn mixtures. Like this dough has one fawn. This yeah. dough has three. This dough has two. Yep. And they were... They and so I kind of like okay there's there's like three fawns there's three does with fawns I started to pick out and the then, little family groups yeah and then I was like okay so there's not a lot out there you know you're talking three does and their babies and and then a couple of big bucks and some young bucks so the young bucks are stupid I mean anybody <laughs> I mean I I mean not to dis- discourage anyone who shoots a a, a three year old blacktail because it's still a challenge but. There's, there's no comparison in how how easy it is to kill a three-year-old blacktail versus a six-year-old blacktail. They're not even yeah. in the same planet universe, you know. But when I would go out there, I, I started to feel out the does. And then I could see him squatting a pee and running around and doing odd rutting behavior. Started yep. to pick that out on the camera. And I had a number of cameras up. So I could walk in, check the cameras, and I started to go, well, if I don't see any rutting activity on the camera whatsoever... Then I'm not going to hunt the stand because it didn't really pay off. Yep. And that's where I started to be able to spend less time because you sit there eight hours. It's bad enough. You got to walk in, check your camera and walk out. But still, you're not sitting there just sort of letting scent dissipate hour after hour after hour. And I found that that worked best. And so what I would do is, it was funny, I would go in, like, every other day and check the camera. And I'd come out. My dad and I would sit down on the living room table, and I'd go through the camera. And you're just like, <laughs> you know how it is. And you're Hell like, yeah. is he there? Is he there? Is he there? What are they doing? Just yeah, tap, this one, tap, tap, this tap. one, this one. And then all of a sudden, boom! Yes! She's in heat, buck yep. is there, it's on, it's on, it's on. And then it's like from that day on, I'd sit three or four days in a row. Yeah. And and surely there would be action almost every yep. time.
1: Yeah, waiting those conditions. I, I just F- feel like I was switched. so close
5: to making it happen on so many occasions. Yeah. That's what
1: keeps drawing us back though, right?
5: But the, let me ask you this, like you could have spent time chasing a different deer. Like I know of other bucks that are easier to target on right. other property. And I could have spent my time invested in something where the buck was even bigger. Like when I talk about Lefty being big, he's he's big, but he's not like he's not like a lot of blacktails. Yeah. You know, 130-inch blacktail, and I'm like, oh my gosh, the biggest blacktail I'd ever seen yeah. on this property where I lived and I grew up. But for me, and I did that film with Tim Burnett that went on Solo Hunter. Um, about blacktails and trophy places, what we call it. It's where I grew up. And there's something sentimental for me there. There's something of a challenge. It wasn't about the size of the deer. It was about getting it done in that place that I cherish, where I have childhood memories. I can
1: 100%
5: relate. Absolutely. So I sit there, and I'm like, would I have been so much better off, you know, going up to the upper Clackamas or – these other areas where we know they're giant bucks and they're a lot easier to kill. And cause that's one thing I would say is I would hunt with my buddy, Anthony, and we would go um, up in the Cascades and hunt blacktails. And the second season typically was around November 17th. And I've seen, and, and the, those bucks in that, and that, the, that area up there, those deer tend to act a little more like the whitetail in Alabama. Hmm. And so it's not like an urban city center kind of place. They're not as cautious. They're not used to humans being in their their space and they're running around and they're doing things differently. And so if I hunted deer there, it was a lot different than hunting them at my house. and I I'll, I we went up there four times, four or five times, and every time we got a shot and Anthony shot two nice bucks up there. Wow. And uh, we only went there like, I mean, you can count it on both hands. So it's like, why don't we go in there all the time?
1: <laughs> right? I know what you're saying. There, you have special places, especially where the memories are. It was the chess match. Yes. When I went up on the mountains, it was like you'd
5: walk in, you find a trail, there'd be snow, a foot of it maybe. You see where the deer are headed, you climb into a tree stand, and it was fun, and the deer would be running around. But it wasn't the deer that I had done reconnaissance with yes. for eight months it wasn't the deer that i had like a five-year history with it wasn't it's almost obsessively ridiculous <laughs> like why would you but but yeah because you're not chasing you. an animal and uh, like you're not chasing there's different makes sense. Between, Well, yeah you're doing you're you're in it for the fun of the chase
1: and there is a, an interesting thing between hunting deer versus hunting a deer and right. when you have an opportunity to hunt a deer and learn a deer and all that chest like we talked about, I mean, that is, it just gets in your blood. It does. And I've got, I mean, I'm in a situation like That's why just I like liked
5: your podcast, too, where I listen to it like crazy because you're talking about Jawbreaker. Yeah, Jawbreaker. You're talking about, one. you know, you're, I'm following and I'm relating to you as I'm thinking of the deer I've named. Yeah. And that I'm following. And I'm like, yeah. it was so relatable to me. And the frustrations and the challenges and the goal, you know, trying to go after it. And when I looked around and I talked to buddies, they didn't get it because they're hunting like your most Western hunters do. There's not a specific deer. We're not, you know, people aren't doing it that way. And so it was fun to apply what I learned from your show to the blacktail space and to, to what I,
1: what I experienced there. And. Yeah, I and found I that so cool. made a whole
5: movie around it.
1: You know, it's awesome. So, but then at the same time, I mean, there's also something really awesome about going to a brand new place and what are we gonna find? How are we gonna make it? how are we gonna make it work. And yeah. a deer you never seen before shows up, and that is pretty special too.
5: Aaron says uh, he's funny. He talks about uh, whitetail, like the ones in Alabama.
1: He talks some crap, doesn't he? <laughs> no, no, he's like, <laughs> he's like, look. These deer
5: are like the ones that grew up in Chechnya. Like they, (laughs) he's like, they're, 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 you know, you grow up in a, in a a combat zone. You act differently. Like you're always checking over your shoulder. He's like, Kansas deer, they're like, they grew up in like suburban white neighborhoods. And, (laughs) and they're, they're just naive. They're not warriors. Uh They're not like warriors. They're not like. And so he was talking about it's a very good analogy. Yeah, and you're you're hitting these kids that grew up in the hood that are <laughs> always like on high alert versus uh, a kid that grew up in in a, in a pretty <laughs> soft situation. He said uh, it's very different. very different hunting <laughs> an animal like that. Yeah, and that's what we found in some of these areas because we've both we've never owned a lot of land or had you know really nice places to hunt like like that. But Alabama, you could tell those. Those deer get hunted. Yeah. Even on this land, like Broderick was talking about, he's like, hey, out here on this property, there's not, we don't put a lot of pressure on them. We try not to. But every piece of property around this place, it's hammered. it's hammered.
1: Yeah. That'll, that'll make an impact. I feel it that, that way all the time in Michigan, too. And it changes it. Yeah. Completely changes
5: it. Michigan, Fish just like somewhere. that. Yeah. yeah. Now, that said, though, you still got it done, right? Well, I mean, I, I feel like... Brett Broderick was really cool. He um, he wanted to shoot. So, <clears throat> Aaron Snyder and I have vastly different personalities, if people can't tell, that, that <laughs> follow <of> the show. <laughs> uh, yeah, yet, I think we picked that up. <laughs> yeah, and yet we're, like, super good, close friends. Like, everything... Uh, we compliment each other well. Mm-hmm. And uh, Aaron has no patience, you know, so... Sitting in a tree stand for one is something he can do, but he does not like. Yeah. And sitting still in a tree stand is even worse. I don't want to sit with Aaron in tree stands. I'm like <laughs> anal retentive. I, I get in the stand, and I lean back, and I am a statue. Yeah. I don't move a muscle, and I sit there, and I and I can sit like that for hours, yeah. and I'm geeking out the whole time. Yep. I don't know why. It's maybe, and I don't I don't remember being like that when I was younger, but. After chasing blacktails, I just—you never know when one's looking at you, you know, or when that big monster's coming. And
1: and it seems like every time you—that one time, you're like ah, you know, I'm gonna stretch my legs. Then you, there he is. There it is. You saw and he runs away. Yep. Exactly so how it goes.
5: Aaron is not patient, and uh, Aaron also can't not shoot. <laughs> so it's your trigger finger. Brian's like Aaron wants to kill animals. He likes to he likes to take the shots and. And he's not all that big, a he's not. He's never been a big antler chaser, you know. He'd love to shoot a big animal, but he's not, he's not in it for that reason. Um, so, long story short, he shot does. And it was funny, because he'd sit at the stand, does would come in, it'd be getting toward dark, and he'd be like, it's almost dark, I'm going to shoot that doe. <laughs> and it's like, it's 45 minutes till dark, like... <laughs> The bucks, gonna, the bucks are the bucks. This, this is when the bucks are going to come in, and Aaron's like, <laughs> "No, no, I, I, I'm just going to shoot the doe." And he shoots the doe, and of course, the whole like field, ag uh-huh. field, just disappears and vacates, and 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 uh, so he did that twice, um, and we're only hunting like four days, so. I'm on the other hand. I have does walking all around. I'm just wait. I, I don't want to shoot that the doe that's in heat. That's gonna bring that yep. buck in. Your decoy. Yeah, so that's my live decoy. Yep. And so, and uh, I haven't had a lot of chances to shoot uh, to hunt. Um, areas where there they have whitetails of this caliber available. You know. So, I I was patient. I'm like I'll I'll I can shoot a doe anytime I want. I'm gonna wait until that that buck comes in and and uh that's really the only difference aaron shot a couple of bucks and and aaron and, shot a couple bucks i mean a couple, a couple does, of does. Sorry. okay that's a couple thought. does i was like i didn't and, see that yeah yeah he shot a couple does and i think that, that <laughs> highly impacted his uh and and then he never there was never a, a buck that was a shooter that came in lots of lots of other bucks but yeah and for me it was like at the last day or second to the last day Broderick took me into a place, and we had never used, <clears throat> I've never used a climber tree stand before, okay. yep. and he had a, a nice alpha hang on climber, and it was really cool. It was neat. We just kind of, like, snipers snuck in there, you know, like, got into this spot, got up in a tree. Shimmy on up. Yeah, and, and the wind was just right, and it was just breaking daylight. We got up in the tree. We were not up in the tree 20 minutes, and deer were just coming out of the woodwork everywhere and uh and it was neat cuz he's like buck deer left buck straight in front there's a buck behind you you know and nothing was a shooter but That's i'm fun. seeing all these deer and i'm like oh it's going to happen it's going to happen so and earlier fun. there was a giant whitetail the first day i climbed in the stand and you know how they are when they're rutting he never stopped yeah. like he was within range a couple of times but he just wouldn't, you could grunt and scream, like, practically yell at the and thing. And he just, and it just it down. He did not care. And he was chasing a doe, and there was no stopping him. Yeah. He never spooked or got out of there. He just never gave me a shot. And it happened a couple times throughout the morning. And I, after seeing that deer, I didn't want, want—I—I, you know how it is, like, you see a 180-inch mule deer, and all of a sudden you're ruined for the rest of the week because yeah.
1: you can't get Put yourself. out there. Yeah, he's out there. He might be 10 minutes totally. away.
5: Totally, Ugh, yeah. And I'm so I kept passing on do that. some other stuff, but this buck came in and he was nowhere near the same caliber. But uh, he was a a coal buck that that uh, he was like four years old or something, and and um, Brian had seen him many times, and he wasn't a uh, too big a deer. He wasn't. He didn't look like he had the genetics that he wanted mm-hmm. long term. I think it's just an excuse to let me shoot it because they typically don't shoot a deer that that small like the rule on the acreage is kind of like dirk durham over there you know or uh, you know like uh anyway i i decided to uh i decided to he said green light and so buck came down and i I let it rip and and this is the thing that surprised me i mean didn't surprise me but it just gave me a, a new respect for for whitetail um I had been told by a lot of people, including Brian and Aaron, that, you know, it's better to just shoot than it is to grunt mm-hmm. or get them to stop. And they kind of look. Yeah, and get they freeze, on edge. And they get on edge, and then they hear the, then the arrow goes. And I cannot believe how fast, it's how crazy. lightning fast they are. Isn't that insane? She because jumped or
1: he jumped the string?
5: He dropped, like... Almost, a, I think a foot, yeah, roughly. I believe it. And so he's only, I think he was twenty-five yards. And I put that pin, and I and I aimed low, just just kind of low, just in case um, he dropped. But I wasn't low enough, and so I'm three inches low, and he dropped a whole foot. And so that arrow hit him, actually hit him in the spine, and he just hit the dirt, you know. And so I, I. I put another arrow in him and he was done like instantly. And it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of, it's, it's refreshing and not when you see an animal drop right in front of you and you don't have to track it, it's like a relief. Like yes. uh, he's right there. Like you did it. You, you're done. It's like whew, just yeah. At the same time you, you hit something in the spine and you're just like the whole time Yeah, I you understand. want it to be over as fast as you can. You're like, I don't like seeing this animal Yeah,
1: on the ground like that yeah the first time i ever spined a deer it was a doe and it was it was like a really painful experience for me too i felt horrible Mm because i spined her she dropped she was still moving around another shot and i i I was freaking out so i rushed the second shot and that wasn't the shot that was going to end it immediately either so then i'm panicking again grab the third arrow and you just feel i mean that is the absolute worst thing you want to have happen
5: yeah it's and, and I feel like, uh, you know, Aaron spined his as well, both of them. They just dropped. And I have the film, and I have the film of the buck I shot, and he's standing there, and Broderick actually grunted. I was at full draw. I was kind of kind of let him walk, but the wind was blowing straight uh, straight toward the buck. Uh, a stiff wind out in front of the buck, I should say. And so another 10 yards, and he was going to hit our wind, our wind pattern, yeah. you know. He'd be downwind of us, and so we, we knew he was coming in close, and Broderick was like, okay, that's far enough, and I was at full draw, and I was kind of hoping for him to stop, and he he just decided, well, it's better to stop him there and get him on edge than it is for him to smell us and yeah. just bolt, so he, he he grunted, and the buck stopped, and he looked right at us, of course, and I didn't give him much time. I, I mean, I already had the pin pretty much yeah. settled, and I let it rip, and he on the video you mark it where he's standing and where he drops to and the arrow is perfect it's going to punch center punch him and he just it just he just drops yep and i couldn't believe i mean his legs went down his elbows were almost on the ground mm-hmm. i'm like man that is just a fast fast response i feel it's so often it happens mm-hmm. so often and that doesn't happen like mule deer don't do that uh, you know they can but it's just not common mule deer, elk, blacktail. It's, n- but th- those whitetail have such a fast
1: twitch, like speed about them that yeah. it's, it's cool. So what do you think? Do you want to do it again? Would you ever go on like a midwestern whitetail hunt? See what that's all about. Does that has that intrigued you yet?
5: So I talked to Aaron about this before we even were very. We we'd only know each other about a month or two, and I was telling him how much I enjoyed blacktail hunting and we talked about whitetail and and he was he he said based and the answer is yes i i think that uh i love the chess match i love sitting in a tree and i love ambush hunting yeah i love ambush hunting i like spot and stock as well and i've done a lot of that any any hunter who's been on the west west side a lot you just that's what your bread and butter is but I won't deny that finding a spot where you're going to, where you predict animals will, will come and sitting and wait for me. That is fun. That is fun. Yeah. Whether that's, you know, a thicket of bushes, you know, a, a ground blind when you made yourself or when you popped up or a tree stand, it doesn't matter for me. It's the sitting and the waiting and knowing that, that you're, and, and I learned this from still hunting. Like, I've still hunted blacktails a lot. Still hunting for blacktails is almost the guys that are really good at it. They walk a foot or two and they stand still for five minutes. Yeah. And they walk a foot glass, or two and they right? stand still for five minutes. I mean, two minutes, three minutes, a long time, and it might take them an hour to get seventy-five yards. Yeah. And I've learned from from uh, hunting blacktails that I used to think I was quiet when i would sneak into the woods so when i started uh walking into my stand to hunt i would do that where i would walk in and you climb up in your tree stand and i've tried to explain this to guys who haven't done a lot of tree stand hunting climb up in your stand and you sit there and you're like man i was so sneaky (laughs) i got in here so quietly you're in their stand and all of a sudden you hear like this bird starts to chirp Mm -hmm. and then another bird and then you see like a a squirrel pop out and and then birds and, and then the forest just turns on. Turns on. It's going yeah. crazy and berserko and you're like, I wasn't sneaky at all. Yeah. Not in the slightest. And I thought about that. I've thought about that a lot since. When I think I'm being quiet and I'm going through the trees, the animals are like ducking for cover yeah they know what's up they know what's up and so they might as well have a megaphone out going (laughs) someone's coming here comes brian because those deer i've seen it happen where i'm up in my stand and some dog or something comes uh out and starts kind of walking down one of the trails and the forest just ripples like with silence until it reaches my spot it's like it's like they they know and the deer they go up on edge they may not see or hear the dog they just saw the squirrels and the birds and everything else that went on alert or acted funny and, and they ditch it. So if I'm still hunting the wrong way, that's tough, man. It's tough to like make it work. So I've learned that there's a lot of value in ambush hunting. Um, And so I do like, even when I'm hunting elk to go out and sit in a spot um, and wait for them to come to me Mm -hmm. rather than me blunder through the trees in their living room and bump oh, yeah. them
1: around. Yeah. That's that's hard. I feel like that's hard for a lot of guys, especially out west, that are born and raised on stalking them around. It's hard to sit and wait. And uh it's interesting what you said about the ambush side because I. A lot of people can't relate if you, unless you haven't done it. But there is something about it's the, it's like a pre-hunt. All the work you do and thinking about mm-hmm. that chest mass, match and looking at maps and scouting and setting tr- tree stands or trail cameras, that's almost the hunt. And all yeah. that, it's like this it's in your head work. Oh. And once you, once you get up in there, that's, okay, now let's just see if it's like hitting a dominoes. Did I line these dominoes up right? Now we're just going to tap that first one and we're going to see what's going to happen. And yeah. watching those dominoes trickle down t- t- t-
5: t- 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 till t- sh- it comes together.
1: When that happens, that is, like, a tremendous feeling of satisfaction. Yeah.
5: I, I It doesn't know.
1: happen often, but I when it does.
5: Aaron and I have talked about this a few times where out west, you know, you get the out west guys that are, like, those white tail guys. It's so easy They just <laughs> walk out on a farm. They got food plots. They climb in a stand. They just shoot the first thing that comes. It's like baiting. It's like they make it sound like it's this easy thing that anybody can do and I'm sure there are pieces of property where, there are situations like yeah, that yeah where that's but that is not the norm yep. but, you know we always think it's easier than it really is when, it, when you haven't walked in another man's shoes yes but as soon as you climb up into a, a tree and Aaron and I have talked about this hell if it's 50 degrees outside and you're sitting there and you don't have the right clothes you're freezing to death in mm-hmm. like one hour oh yeah it's all you can do to stay up in the stand and so and then you guys are hunting in some weather that's just stupid, like cool. negative 20 degrees. And, and
1: you're sitting for hours and hours and hours.
5: And that right there is its own level of mental toughness and mental discipline. Yeah. That I think a lot of Western hunters are like, dude weighs 280 pounds and can't climb up a hill. <laughs> but the dude can sit in negative 30 all day long. It's a different kind of tough.
1: There's something there to be said about it. Yeah. It's, it's all good, right? I mean, there's oh, all yeah. these different types of hunting, and it's all got its own fun. And I awesome. secretly
5: crave, you know, tree stand hunting. Yeah. It's like my – I love A guilty it. Guilty pleasure. Yeah. I, I like to climb up there, and part of it is because I like quiet contemplation time. Yeah. Time where I just sit and, and watch things, and uh, and that's where glassing in the west – Aaron and I do a lot of glassing too, where you just sit all day long and you just watch stuff
1: yeah.
0: through
5: your binos, cool. and that's that's also very, it's similar feeling in terms yeah. of that.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny when I think when I'm like talking to people that haven't gone out west and or the other way around. I, there's two different unique, really cool things going on when it comes to like, not just the hunting aspect, but like the internal aspect. So I mm-hmm. feel like when you're whitetail hunting, just like you said. You get this opportunity, which is very rare in today's crazy modern life, to be able to sit still and not have anyone asking something of you or talking to you. You just get to sit, be still, be present, and you have time to think about stuff. You have time to unpack things that are going on in your life, or you have time just to do that. So that's having time to go within yourself. Very cool. On the other side of the thing, when you're a Western hunter and you're spotting stalking, at least... My experience is out West because you're 100% fully engaged in that moment, moving through the woods, checking the wind, where, what's going on? Why am I stalking in here? you every step you take, every action you take, you are fully 100% in that moment thinking about the next step. So you don't think about anything. You think about nothing in the outside world except for what's the very next thing I'm going to do. So it's, it's true. It's, it's really interesting. There are two complete opposite sides of the coin in that way. Yeah. But the, the, the far extremes of each side. So yeah. either you are 100% in the moment or you are 100% available to go inside yourself. Yeah. And it's very, very cool either way. It's like
5: <clears throat> when I'm elk hunting and we're bugling and we're calling an elk and it's just run and gun from morning till dark. Yeah. Four or five days in a row. I haven't even thought about my kids like, <laughs> once. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I mean, I'm. it's... Especially if the conditions are snowy or cold, or life and death at times, where we're we're in the mountains and it's it's just a or it's raining hardcore. I mean, it's just a it's just a sufferfest. Yeah. Those times, um, it's all about surviving, achieving that goal. You're 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 focused on that one thing, toughing it out, yep. mentally staying in the game, and yeah. all that. I don't think you and you do you you email not a thing, mm-hmm. you know, PMs, whatever messages posting something, uh, you know, your kids, uh, you know, swim practice like it's just none of it's on your radar at yeah. all. And I think it's really good to to unplug
1: from life that fully. All right, before we move on, we are going to take one final short break for a word from our partners at the Whitetail Institute of North America. And with fall food plot season coming very quickly, producer Spencer Newharth connected with one of Whitetail Institute's food plot experts to get the lowdown on some of the best fall food plot options we can be
3: considering this year. This week with Whitetail Institute, we're talking to consultant John Cooner about their special blend of Imperial Whitetail beets and Greens which is designed to hold deer fall all the way through winter.
7: Beets and Greens is a, is a neat product. It is an all-braska product, but it's unusual in that it's a blend of, of multiple brassica varieties that serve a number of purposes. The main ones are that they provide together attraction and food for deer from the fall all the way into and maybe through the dead of winter. The components are sugar beets. Most folks know how attractive they are to deer when you plant them in the fall. It's got tall-time turnip in it, which is a turnip variety that the Whitetail Institute developed over six years specifically for deer. Uh, The tall-time turnip, the foliage is for late fall through winter. It also has a kale variety in it that is unusual uh, when compared to most kale varieties and that it's loose-leafed, it's very attractive to deer, um, and it's a vegetable cultivar. That, uh, that does not grow on a tight head the way a cabbage does. And finally, there's the Whitetail Institute 412 Radish that maximizes the attraction over the long term by adding forage and tubers for later in the year. As a secondary uh, benefit, the product, uh, because of the tubers produced by the radish and uh, tall-time tubers, can actually improve this quality, especially of compacted soils, by drilling down even a couple of feet into the soil and making wide spaces Uh, that help water and air move, uh, and any tubers that remain after winter will break down the following spring and even improve uh, the quality of soil by adding organic matter. But the main thing is it's built for attraction of deer all the way through fall and through the winter.
3: If you'd like more info on Whitetail Institute's forage products, check out whitetailinstitute.com where they also carry some of the top supplements, attractants, and herbicides available.
1: I want, to talk, I want to talk about something that I think, just based on talking with you and every time I've listened to you, and I know some of the things you recommend and do, I think this is something that you probably think about a lot too. And you, you, you touched on it right there, and I think it applies equally, in different ways, but equally to hunting out west or hunting whitetails, mm-hmm. to be very successful at it, mental toughness. Mm-hmm. And I think mental toughness is something that doesn't get a whole lot of talk when it comes to hunting. I mean, we we talk about where to hang my tree stand or how do we find where elk bed or how do I yeah. shoot better, all these like physical, tangible things we have to do. But if there's any quality I see in in most of the really consistent, successful hunters, it's those people that have that mental toughness. I know you're a big reader, mm-hmm. um, so I imagine you're you're tapping into some things and some. I know some people that we share interest in have this. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, at a high level. Yeah, Do you agree with me? Is that, is that as important I as think, I think it is? I think it's everything. Yeah. And I
5: think uh, I've heard this a lot. I think it's it'll tie to, I mean, all your success in life can be linked to self-discipline and, mm-hmm. and mental toughness. And believe me, I mean, there's certain things I'm real tough in and some things where I'm not. I'm sure, we're human. Yeah. But in general, um, Stephen Rinella did a podcast a meat eater a while back with Denver Rourke. Mm,
4: didn't and hear that one.
5: It's a great one. I, yeah. I really recommend to people check to out. check that out. And he talks about, he talks about this. I think that, um, you know, the question is that, that get, gets proposed on that podcast and Aaron and I have debated this a few times. Is it learned or is it genetic? Eight, yeah. You know, are you born with it or are you, I think it's both. I think there's a combination of both. I think you, you, we all have our natural inclinations regarding mental toughness or our natural abilities, physical abilities. Yeah. Right. I can't dunk a basketball, you know? Um, And so we all have, we're all varied in what we can do genetically, but we're also, and I think your, your mind and your capacity to be tough mentally goes with that. But we all have the ability to be shaped by circumstances as well, depending on how we decide to react to them. And I think that you might, it's. I absolutely believe that you can develop, and and hone mental toughness. It's like a muscle. Yep. Everybody's going to be born with it to a certain extent naturally, of course. But wherever you're at, we've already established it's a valuable commodity. Yeah. You want it, so so why not cultivate it? So for me, I I've talked about this a few times. I uh, followed Wim Hof. Um. He was on Joe Rogan. He's been on like. A few podcasts, right? And and uh, he's the Ice Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's the Wim Hof method, which is a breathing method, and you get in the ice water and you freeze to death. <laughs> you know, sounds like fun. The guy has a way of uh, of breathing, and so he's met c- c- climb, uh, climbed uh, Mount Kilimanjaro, and uh, yeah, a couple other in in his under, in his shorts um, wow. and a pair pair of boots. I think he might have done a barefoot too. Jeez, uh, he's done some crazy stuff. He's on he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, and he goes goes into a lot of detail there. But basically, he's done some things through his mind that are pretty fascinating. Um, and I won't bore people with it, but it's something to to look into. But he talks about finding comfortable comfort and discomfort. Yeah, and he tells you that happiness is actually in the struggle, in in, in not being comfortable and being cold when when you'd rather be warm being uh, hungry when you're you know when you want to eat and and he, and he talks about how the human body and psyche needs these acute stresses and needs these these moments to 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 respond to and overcome to be happy and healthy sure well i don't know about you but climbing into cold water for 5 minutes or 15 minutes or 10 minutes the first thing you do when you climb let's say it's its 30 degrees outside and you're going to go get inside of a cold lake how long do you think you'll stay in there Mark? not very long yeah it sucks the second you get in there everything inside your brain is saying get out, get out, get yeah. out, get out this is awful, this is painful, this is awful this is horrible everything is like get out of the water but you're like no no we're staying here for five minutes and you do that and then you go back and you do it again for 10 uh, minutes are you saying
1: you've done this yes yes Interesting. i did it with my and you're brother. doing this as an exercise a mental tough can i can i mind over body yes Can i mind over body it and by doing that by by flexing that muscle in that way you're able to it was an experiment yeah yeah and so my brother. Proven to yourself you can do it. My
5: brother was born when I was about 16 years old, so we, we didn't grow up together. Oh, wow. But uh, he got leukemia when he was like f- five, something like that. And uh, he spent a lot of time sick and playing video games. And during the time, right when he should have been getting his butt beat, uh, he was maybe going to die from cancer. So my parents really didn't. You know, he got away with everything. Yeah. Anything he wanted, he just kind of got because maybe he's going to be dead tomorrow. You right. know what I mean? So right. during those formative years, he kind of got pretty darn spoiled. And I think there's a lot of discipline and character that he did not develop because he got spoiled. Um, in a way, I mean, surely chemo is no picnic. Right. He, he had still his, had to mentally had grind adversity. through it. Yeah. yeah, But it was different. Like, he didn't get disciplined in the same way the rest of us did. As he got older, you know, he, he definitely, he admitted, I don't have a lot of mental toughness. And uh, we were talking about this, and he wanted to develop it. And he saw the Wim Hof thing, and he's like, I'm going to do this. And this is a kid who had a hard time, like, staying enrolled in school. And, you know, setting his mind to something he'd quit after it got hard, you know. And this was like, I'm going to do this. And I watched him over the course of six, eight months every day with that. it started out with just a few minutes in the water and then it was five minutes and then it was 10 and then it was 30 wow and he got to a point where and he made himself do it every day was a struggle it never really got easier it always sucked for the first bit you know right but then it would feel good later throughout the day that he accomplished that yes. and i think i think you can through through small baby steps Of making yourself do things that you don't want to do, developmental toughness. You have Dave Ramsey talks about, uh, he says something like, kids do what they feel like doing. Grown-ups do what they know is good for them because it's good for them. Mm -hmm. Right? My daughter's like, hey, Brian, Dad, I don't want to go to, I don't want to go on, (laughs) Dad, I don't want to go on this hike with you and Aaron. And I'm like, you know what, honey? I know you don't want to go on this hike with me but it's good for you and grownups do things that are good for them even though they don't want to yeah and she's like i hate it when you say that <laughs> and it's like it's it's true honey you're gonna do it because uh, it's good huh. for you and you don't have the mental toughness right now to make yourself do it so that's why you got a parent yeah i'm here to make you take care of yourself until you're old enough to have the discipline to do that on your own mm-hmm. that's how i developed character you know my dad's like you're chopping wood today and i'm like i don't want to chop wood. all we do is chop wood (laughs) he's like i don't care it's good for you and you're gonna do it because i said so and then later as a grown man i'm like we need wood i'm gonna go chop it you know it's like i don't know it's maybe sounds overly simplistic but i think that you can develop it
1: i think it's to your point um it's funny (laughs) you you probably follow Jocko a little bit yeah so Jacko Willink, There was a, one of his early, early episodes. They were talking about this. Him and uh, I'm blanking. Uh, Echo. Mm-hmm. Echo uh, Charles. Yeah, Echo. Echo Charles. And they're talking about mental toughness. And Echo asks Jocko, well, "How do you, how do you do this? How do you build mental toughness?" Mm-hmm. Jocko just says, "You do it. You decide. You decide to do it, and you do it." And it, Echo's like, well, no, there's got to be more, there's got to be more. <laughs> no, he goes back and says the same thing, but um, but in the end, Echo actually had a good example of what he was doing, and I think it's it's um, it's a good way to go about it. And I think I apply this a little. I try to apply this in my own life. And he he gave a little example of just a very simple, very simple little thing. But he said, you know, he wanted to try to become more mentally tough because he felt like he didn't have that very much growing up, wasn't raised in a way where yeah. he had to to flex or that was muscle. Pushed. And- yep, pushed. So he said. This has been on this has been on his mind recently. So he was in the grocery store aisle mm-hmm. and he had like a pet case of beer and something else heavy in his left hand and he had he got into this line, it was a very long line. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to let that case of beer and the other heavy thing in his left hand he wanted to put it on the ground. Mm-hmm. And he had a long ways to go and there was like lots and lots of groceries in the lady's cart. He yeah. knew he was gonna be here a long yeah. time. He wanted to set everything down, he said this he like took note though. He was like mentally cognizant of this opportunity. He said, You know what? No. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to try to build mental strength. And I'm just I'm not I'm choosing right now, I'm not going to set these down no matter yeah. how long I have to wait. I'm not setting it down. And yeah. I'm going to see if I can do it and I'm going to do it. And it's a stupid little thing, but he did it. And uh-huh. then once he did it, he said, "Hey, that was one way I can make a mental decision to push through an uncomfortable situation that I usually wouldn't want to do." And in some tiny 0.1% way, yeah. he improved his mental toughness. And I think if you go through life looking for opportunities like that and saying, like, look like for me, mm-hmm. I am not. I mean, I think everyone hits a wall physically when they're doing some type of exertion, but I am not some kind of G.I. Joe type dude. Right. But when I go on runs and stuff, I always envision at the end, you know, I'm, I'm conked out. I can't go any further. You hit that wall mm-hmm. and you got got 100 yards left to go or something. Mm-hmm. And every time I get that, that I always think in my head, this is it. This is where it's your mind. Man, yeah. This is if you're gonna, are you gonna kill that elk? Are you gonna get to the top of that hill? Right? Are you going to be able to sit in that tree stand when the big buck comes through? Are right. you gonna be able to handle the cold? And you just like have to go into your head and say, no. Gonna yeah. push through it. Going to overcome it. And That's, every little time you can do that, I think it helps.
5: I, I agree. I also think that it's very good to put, be put in a situation where you have no choice. Yep. I was just talking to David Brinker and he was like, Well, I really want to go on a solo moose hunt. I'm like, really? He's like, Yeah, where they drop me off for seven days and they come back and get you for ten days or whatever. Wow. And I'm like, that's that's Hardcore. rugged. That's yeah. But there's he's like I'm like, why? And he said, Well, there's a certain amount of character, I think, and yep. growth that comes from the fact that I have to make it. Like there's nobody else there. there's no quitting like Denver was talking about being in the Navy Seals and they're in Buds training and there's a bell there and at any moment you right. can walk yeah. over and ding the bell. yeah. How many of those guys would have made it through the training and not ding the bell if they were in a wartime situation and it was similar drudgery, but it was if life you, or death. It was life or death. Yeah. Probably a lot of them would actually tough it out, yeah, right? It's the ability to quit. Like Echo Charles is holding those two things in his hand. He's like, well, I could put it down. Technically, he could put it down anytime he wants. Yeah. Right? But if you're in a situation where it's like, well, if you put it down, something dire is going to happen. and You find what you're really capable of. And, and I think that often some of the best people I've met that, that have this kind of resiliency, some of them were put in a situation where they were like, I had no choice. You're like, wow, you overcame. You did some stuff that was... Phenomenal, and they're like, "Yeah, and I, if you'd have asked me if I could have done that, I would have said no. Right. Never could have done that. But I had no choice. And then I found out what I was really made of." Cameron Haynes talks about running the Boston Marathon with mm-hmm. Lance Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. He's like, "Yeah, I'm running, running, and running. I'm thinking I'm dying I'm halfway through, and I'm like, I'm I can't do this." And he gets up by, by Lance, and he's like, "Lance, I'm dying here. I'm dying, you know." Or he actually last asked Lance, "How are you feeling?" And he's like, "I'm effing." he's like i'm (laughs) having dying man and so cam was like what like if he's dying then 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 the way i feel i'm dying but he's gonna keep pushing right and so he's like my goal was just to stay with him and then he did a little longer and then pretty soon he's like no matter what i'm not gonna i'll die before i stop and mentally he decided and he made it and he did it and he said uh he said something about they ran the second half of the Boston Marathon faster than they ran the first half. Wow. And that there's only like a couple of people in history that have ever done that. Really? And it's him and Lance Armstrong and like a couple <laughs> others. Wow. And so that's phenomenal, right? Yeah. And he thought at halfway point, he's like, there's no way I can go any faster. And if I keep this pace up, I'll never make it to the end. And he's like, I just realized at that point that we're so much more capable uh, of things than we think we are. And I always think about that. You know, you said Marcus Latrell talks about how most people quit when they still have 80% left or something like that. Yeah. It's some crazy amount of... And so I always think about that when things are tough and it's hard and I'm mentally grinding it out. I'm trying to make it to the top of the trail. Someday I'd like to be Aaron Snyder to the top. <laughs> I've but heard that's tough. It's probably not going to happen. But I'm I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to still keep coming at it and the thing of it is sometimes I'm like how much of it is physical ability how much of is mental toughness how, how much of it is Aaron is just mentally tougher than me Yeah, and that haunts me right like I'm competitive I don't like that Yeah, and so I'm like dig deeper call go harder it does, you know drop if you have to and there are times where I'm climbing at 9,000 feet behind Aaron and I literally have so little oxygen that I'm I'm about to black out Like I'm about to like, I see a little bit of stars and I'm like, slow down a little. (laughs) And then your oxygen comes back Uh and, uh, and, and I resume hiking, but pushing it to that limit. I mean, I also think I'm not going to die. You know, it's just, you you know, you might fall down, but it's not a life and death situation. I think a lot of people blow up in their mind how difficult something is. It's like. Well, yes, it's hard, but no one, you're going to be around tomorrow, Yeah, you know, just pain.
1: Yeah. yeah, I feel like I feel like that just comes into play so many times in hunting situations, whether it be dealing with bad weather on a backcountry trip or whether it be just dealing with 17 eight-hour sits in a row where you don't see the buck you're after and finally, damn it, I just want to sleep it. I'm not waking up before him, but you know what? That's the day that you would have seen him. I
5: agree. What about this? Let me ask you this, because I think this is is very much tied to this whole discussion on mental toughness, this this thing I'm about to talk about. Okay. Negativity. Yeah. I think that it takes an extreme level of mental toughness not to be negative.
1: It goes hand in hand. I agree.
5: That means trash talking somebody else in a negative way. That means, yep. like, being a hater on yep. the Internet. All that stuff, to me, is mental weakness. Yes. There's There's it's giving into it's and usually it's rooted in ego and pride and it's usually done to belittle someone else to make yourself feel better when i see someone who's hating on someone else who's trying to achieve trying to do good things trying to make a difference when i see that i'm just like that negativity that hate i think it's weakness coming out of their mouth and mentally tough people often I think they 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 put that in check and they say, yeah. you know what, I'm not going to be that guy. I'm going to be this positive person yeah. that does positive things. And and that builds that mental toughness.
1: I agree. And I think 100%. And then that also applies to actually being able to execute on, um, you know, how you can execute on, uh, on anything, whether it be dealing with a tough situation in life or whether it be you know, a social engagement or dealing with criticism or looking at someone else and comparing yourself and say, oh man, he's doing really great. I wish I was doing that great. And the easy thing is to, like you said, get negative, say, well, yeah, but they're, they got this hand. Or well, yeah, but they're jerks or whatever you want to say. Um, But if you look at it the other way and you maintain that positive attitude about whether it be a project you're working on, a hunt you're going on, that I think is like a, a develops a snowball effect. And if you can stay in the game, stay positive, stay mentally tough, you put yourself in a position to eventually be in the places you want to be, whether it be successful business, mm-hmm. whether it be getting the shot, whether yeah. I mean I, I think they, positive
5: self talk but positive treatment of others, they yeah. they all go hand in hand because it's so easy to become to give in to our natural instincts to be negative and hate yeah. on someone.
1: Man, that's that's awfully prevalent in this hunting world. And well, I, know I think bo- in
5: the social media world in general, right? right. Like, it's so easy now it to enables just be a uh, to be cr- cruel or mean or or yeah. or belittling. And <laughs> again, I I think it, that serves the the weaker side of us. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to start developing some mental toughness, don't give into that. Yeah, be positive. And you may not like something someone else produces. You may not be a fan of their their exercise routine or how they shoot a bow or how you know their comedy routine, whatever it is. But to me, it's like you cannot be a fan of that, but also respect them. Yeah, and that other people do appreciate or or value them. Uh, so there's there's no like I said, I I just feel like it's 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 giving into that base instinct that you have, that weak instinct. And if you want to develop some mental toughness, start with being positive when you when you feel that urge to belittle someone else.
1: Yeah. I, I, speaking of social media, right? There's this um, tendency, and starts with TV too, with regular media, and then social media. In that, you know, going back to just hunt, the hunting world, and we see so and so killed a big buck, or so and so got this great thing, or even just in life, so and so's business is doing so much better than mine or so-and-so's whatever um and you start comparing yourself to others Mm -hmm. and and this is something i've personally struggled with like um i find myself constantly comparing myself and feeling bad about myself because i'm not doing as good as x or so and so did that why can't i do that why didn't i do that what's wrong with me right and it's something I'm 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 aware of i think step one is being aware of it you can then you can then make an imp- you can make a change based mm-hmm. on awareness but it's not, it's like a natural thing that happens to me and i think this affects a lot of people's like satisfaction with hunting this mm-hmm. impacts you know how much you enjoy going out there and when you start getting putting pressure on yourself or looking at facebook during november and feeling bad because this guy killed one that guy killed I can't i what, why can't i right um how do you it, deal with that do you do you have those types of feelings sometimes you
5: feel i think I think people would be lying if if they said they didn't right. in general, I think we all go through that um you know it's a good question i I feel like um the way that I deal with it is I focus on gratitude, yeah, gratefulness um, my wife went through cancer a couple few years ago, and uh it was it was a hard time for me i in fact didn't handle it how I hoped I would, you know it was a little. I wanted to be that mentally tough guy. Um, and there were moments where I had breakdowns that I didn't see coming. that I didn't think I'd have. So I think that what, what, what I found was it's really tough when you're, when you're actually sit back and you're like, I am so thankful for what I have and for who I've met and for my kids and my wife. And I'm so grateful for the health I have and the physical abilities I, I have, I possess yeah. and, and you go through that list, it, you know, I may not be the richest guy, but hey, man, I am so, I, I love this truck. Yeah. You know, I could afford that. You yeah. know, you start going through, it sounds silly, but when you start going through all this stuff you know, that you're grateful for. I think it's really difficult then to sit there and think about and dwell on all the things you don't have yeah. that someone else has that you don't have. And so I try every day to, to wake up and two things, be grateful be, be truly grateful for, for, for everything and also live for today. Yeah. Not, not for tomorrow, not for I'll be happy when, not for, you know, as soon as I kill that elk, everything is good. No, today, today was awesome. Yeah. Every day is awesome. And even days where I'm like, man, I just, all I did was drive kids to, to school and drop them off and, and clean the house. And you know, it's like, it's not what I wanted, and yet it was a great day. Yeah. You know, and I think when you start approaching life from that perspective, um, it's you stop doing the comparison thing. Yeah. That's how I come combat it. Yeah. That's how I do it.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. I mean, that's that's my antidote that I'm always trying to remind myself of too. It's like you can't be negative and you if you you. If you take every time you're feeling negative like that and replace it with gratitude, the two things can't coexist. Yeah. So you can. if you're Same as like time,
5: fear and faith. You know, yeah. I believe. Sometimes I'm sitting there and I'm like, "Is Gritty Bowman like a waste of time? Yeah. It, or is Gritty Bowman really gonna go the distance? Am I making a difference? Am I adding value? No. And it, you start to have doubts. Um, and I think it's very easy for us to focus on fears, mm-hmm. right? Oh yeah. And uh, and am I creative enough? Am am I? Am, is this film becoming what I want it to be? Yeah. Uh, and when I focus on that, you're focusing on fear. Yeah. But when I focus on, I believe I can do this. I believe that this is making a difference. I believe this is important for me. I believe that I can make a film or or. You know, interview or do some stuff that's read a book and share that that that's gonna make a difference yep. and uh when I focus on that and in the faith, faith and fear don't really go together, yeah, you know a belief that you can do something or a fear that you can't, they're totally different
1: it's like it's like a shield almost like I feel like we're gonna have negative things that are gonna come at us. we are going to have fears that are gonna come at us, and if you can learn to identify that and say okay here it comes i know what's happening i know what's going on in my head right now and mm-hmm. then you know okay now i put that shield i'm gonna, I'm gonna believe i'm going to be positive and I know grateful. it
5: sounds so cliche yeah, and cheesy it and it's
1: woo woo but, but
5: the truth is that's what i think
1: and it's it's that like this is life stuff and then this is also some of the best hunting advice you're ever gonna get i think because if yeah. you can apply these mental um tools i suppose yeah to what you're trying to achieve in the woods or in the mountains,
5: dude, it goes back to if you don't believe you're going to be able to kill a blacktail buck, uh, you know, on Saturday when you're heading out, yep. then you're not going to you're not going to descent your clothes the way you really should. Yes, you, you're not going to wear the rubber boots. You, you're, yeah. not gonna, you're not going to you're not going to shoot your bow. You, there's all these things you're not going to do because yep. you're like it's not going to work anyway. Yes, it's so mental. And and so when you have faith and you believe, then you do all these activities that lead to success. Yep. I just I, I think you have to combat fear with a be, with belief. And, yep. and if you if you don't, um, it's self fulfilling. Yep. You know your failure is it can happen. And the thing is, is again, it goes back to so it didn't work out. I'm grateful that I spent a whole day in the wilderness, like. It, Taking in creation, right? Like taking in the world. It's, this is it's a pretty darn day. It's, a, it's an amazing place. So, it all goes back to, to you know, success in the mountains or in the in the woods. It's, yep. it's the same. Um,
1: it really is. Yeah, and I love talking about this stuff. Yeah. You, um, I feel like we share a lot of similar reading interests. Mm-hmm. Um, for people listening that want to learn a little bit more, just kind of engage in these types of discussions a little bit more with a book. Um, Do you have anything you'd recommend? Yeah. um, I'm guessing there's some of the same things that I would.
5: Yeah, you know, I uh, did a podcast on extreme ownership Mm -hmm. with that Jocko Willink wrote, and uh, that's one of our highest downloaded podcasts of all time, and it's really, it's ironic because... It's not a hunting podcast, really. I mean, it's it's a flat out book review. Right. We talk about the book. Now it ties in. Corey Jacobson and I did it, and uh, Jordan Harbertson had Mountain Ops, and it was a good, it was great. And then we did uh, another one called "Ego is the Enemy." Yeah. And I feel like that was that book is so um, important in our time. Right now, where you can just say whatever you want on the internet, and yep. people are kind of out of touch with reality, and um, it's very easy to just—I don't know—ego seems to just be a, a a huge. I just see it everywhere I turn, and I don't. Our culture kind of cultivates. Yeah, this. it's the book was very enlightening for a lot of people. I mean, it's funny Corey Jacobson, Elk 101. He's like, Brian, I got halfway through the book. And the whole time I was thinking, man, this is just like my buddy so-and-so. Oh, (laughs) man, this is just like Uh so-and-so. He gets halfway through the book and he's like, oh, my gosh, this book has been talking about me me. the whole time. Yeah. That was a huge eye-opener. And I think that you can't combat pride and ego if you don't really see it. Yeah. And so I think that's a a hugely important book. So we covered both of those, and that's why we did that. But The other books I really like, um, Jocko Willing just did a book review on Man's Search for Meaning by Hmm. Viktor Frankl. I
1: haven't heard
5: that. I've read that book at least 20 times.
1: Man's Searching for Meaning?
5: Man's Search for Meaning. Man's Search for Meaning. And I I kid you not, at least 20 times. It's a short read, but I have read it at least once a year for 20 years. And uh, he is a Nazi concentration camp survivor, a Jewish Holocaust survivor. And he talks about just Jocko approached it from a different angle than, uh, than I've kind of ever thought. I thought about it in those terms, but you know, he's definitely approached it from a slightly different angle than me. Um, it was a great podcast to hear him go over it, but it's a, that to me is a life changing book. Um, then the other ones are like, you know, when people ask me, how did you do Gritty Bowman and blah, blah, blah. Well, a big part of that was you know, the total money makeover with Dave Ramsey hmm. and Financial Peace University, getting out of debt and learning to manage my finances better and saving and planning. Yeah. And the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss. Yeah, that was huge. That's how I negotiated. Eventually, I was working from home three days a week and only going to the office, too, Yeah. which that allowed me to do Gritty Bowman on the side. So getting my finances in order, getting that career in order, and then chasing some dreams through four-hour week, work week. And then since then, I've read a lot of what Tim Ferriss has produced. and Yeah, good stuff. So those are some of the the big highlights for me that that influenced, uh, especially uh, in recent times. But I have an Audible account, and I've had one since Audible launched, an audiobook account. Yeah, yeah. And I get, like, Four credits or two credits a month—I can't remember now. It, I get two bucks a month, basically, for 20 bucks. So they're about 10 bucks each, and then I buy an extra one here and there. Yes. But I probably—I use my credits every month. I read or listen to on Audible two books a month, and now I've got hundreds of books in that inventory because it's been since it's been more than 10 years since I've since I've done that. And so, a lot of books out there, man, that are—I say, man, Dave Ramsey says you're the same person today that you are. 20 years from now except for the books you re- read and the people you
1: meet yeah i, I like ryan, Holl- ryan Holiday, who wrote the ego is the enemy he's kind of enabled me <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a bad way maybe but, yeah. uh, but it's a good way but i tell my wife and she shakes her head because he always talks about that the a book is a purchase that is, you is never the wrong purchase because yeah. you are giving yourself the opportunity to, to walk in someone else's shoes or to open the door into a different world to see the world in a different way. To learn something. And every time you have an opportunity to learn something, yep. that's worth that's worth any dollar amount. Um, I agree. And, yeah, I think just always learning, exploring these things. Another one he wrote. Did you read The Obstacles of the Way?
5: Yeah. Uh, I actually posted that on Instagram two days ago. Um, that was the one we, we call we started what we call a gritty
1: book club I've seen that and uh, I'd s- love to uh, I'd love to be yeah, we, in book should, club yeah someday. we you should a, can I be in your book club <laughs> 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 yeah nobody else ever reads I, these books I, I.
5: Randy Newberg's <laughs> in it now he uh he wants to join we're gonna do a couple books on conservation nice where we're he's he's, he's you know read a ton of those books and I'm like you know I'm deficient in this space so we're gonna read it and then talk about it but the Gritty Book Club is just, a, um, we read a book, you know, me and a friend or a couple of friends, and then we do a podcast about it. And it's sort of just not really the core podcast, but um, they're, I love the idea of exposing people to, uh, we can talk about it for an hour, right? Hour and a half, two hours, whatever it is. But when you when you sit down with that book in your own, and you read, you know, a book that takes twenty five hours to get through. It's way more than I could tell you in two oh, yeah. hours. Oh yeah. And written in such a way that someone put their their heart and soul into it. And I think it that's really life changing stuff. So I like to I like I like to do it. Um, and uh so Obstacles of the Way is the next one that one. Corey and I we finished reading it. Jordan and I are on it for our second time, so we're supposed to get together and discuss that one. But yeah. That one was, is really good. It
1: speaks to a lot of things we've been talking about here the last 20, 30 minutes. Tell me, what's your favorite fiction book? Favorite fiction book? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, I'm a nerd. <laughs> so my fi- – oh, you know this. <laughs> I, know, I know. You, you, I know. you I, know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it, dude. I love The Lord of the Rings. <laughs>
5: the Lord of the Rings. Dude. Every now and then i got to send you a text <laughs> or, like, make fun of Jordan
1: Harbertson. Dude, Jordan knows what's up. Yeah. He yeah. knows what's up. Yeah. Gandalf, the wisdom, but it's it's it yeah, it's a little nerdy, wiz, uh, wizards and elves and everything, but it's the it's the hero's tale that we all yeah. live in some weird way where you
5: oh, it's phenomenal,
1: yeah, and there's there really is wisdom in there, and and I know that might seem weird, but to read that book and there is mm-hmm. wisdom and there are lessons learned and, and creativity, is, yeah, and it's uh, it's a it's a it's pretty cool,
5: yeah, weird I agree. Way. I read uh i read i ask nonfiction because i I think that it's hugely impactful as well, yeah. you know I'm a big fan of harry Potter, yeah me too um <laughs> i I loved Harry Potter, I've read those a couple of times uh, I'd love to read it with my kids, and um I think those stretch yourself too, so it's not all about n- non fiction yeah
1: yeah i i I just love to read <laughs> so. But we. Well, are, you did work for Google. I did work for Google. You, you
5: are one of those educated types. Wow, well, I don't know like about that. College
1: kids. I, I always thought that I somehow slipped through the cracks when I was working there. I just kept. I was always <laughs> waiting for someone to walk up and like tap me on the shoulder and say, "Hey, you're not you're supposed, not to, supposed be to be here." <laughs> we don't know how this happened, <laughs> somehow I made it through. Yeah. But uh, we're getting kicked out of our little outdoor studio here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're gonna have to shut it down. But dude, Brian, thank, thank you. you.
5: I just want to say thanks for having me on the podcast. It's pretty neat. I've been a big fan of all your work and what you've done for for a long time i mean you were the first person that did a podcast in the outdoor industry that i reached out to and uh yeah i, I just i really appreciate what you do and i'm i'm glad uh, i got to be on your show
1: well ditto right back at you it's, <laughs> it's been really cool to see what you've been able to do and the the positive difference you're making and if anyone's not already checking out the gritty bowman you guys are doing great work you should check it out subscribe listen and um they can find that anywhere. They can find the Wiredown podcast, right? Yep. Any iTunes,
5: th- Podbean, Stitcher, yeah, YouTube. That's one thing that is a little different. Like, I've done video episodes since we right. started. That's so That's nice. In general, you know, I don't. I don't. I. Most people just listen. But the video is out there for some folks, yep, which is cool. If I have an attractive guest, the the view goes up. <laughs> yeah, I like, can see that? You know, it's That's like a good thing. It's, it's kind of funny. There's a pretty girl on the podcast, and then all of a sudden, my views yeah, triple. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I've always wanted to be a video mine, but I live in country back of the woods, corn belt, and my internet is so bad yeah. I can't even upload video, let alone stream.
5: Yeah, I'm having that problem too. In evergreen, um, just in the little oh, yeah. pocket with rats. I end up going to the coffee shop a lot more than I thought yeah, I
1: would. That's what I have to do a lot too. Yeah. And then I pay for ridiculously expensive <laughs> data plans from Verizon and use that. But And, and you get a latte. Yes, <laughs> yeah. So great time with this yeah brand. man. Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's talk more. All right. And that's going to be it. Thanks for sticking around for what I believe has been our longest podcast yet, but uh, I hope you enjoyed, especially what we got to here towards the end, this topic of the mental side of hunting and life, uh, I think is very, very important. It's something we typically don't think about, but it really can have a significant impact on your life when you start being mindful of that. So hope you enjoyed it. Uh, I just want to give you another reminder, like I talked about at the top here We're doing the live podcast next week, July 21st, down in New Orleans at the Quality Deer Management Association National Convention. we would love to see you guys there, so be sure to check that out, 9.45 a.m. at the convention on July 21st, and then 8 p.m. that night, we're going to do a Wired to Hunt meetup. That'd be awesome to see you there as well. So that's all from me. Thank you for listening. Big thanks to our partners at Sitka Gear, Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, the Whitetail Institute of North America, Trophy Ridge, and Huntera Maps. And of course, thank you all so much for listening. I hope you have an amazing day, an amazing week. And until next time, stay wired to hunt.
0: It's got a full, great sear zone so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MeatEater for 10% off your purchase.